I think I figured out what's weird about you. Oh, really? Well, I figured out one thing that's weird about you. Okay. All right. Uh, everybody else that I do a podcast with, we assume that everything, that the, the show begins as we start recording. And I, I don't think you believe that. Uh, that's a terrible idea. And I don't believe in that as a good practice for recording podcasts. You agree that makes you weird? No, I think that makes you weird because nobody, I, I've done podcasts with lots of other people and the common factor in the podcast where things begin as soon as the Skype call uh, starts yeah. is you. You are the common factor there. Everybody else in the world, when they're not doing podcasts with you, doesn't do that. So you're, that, can't be, that can't be true. You're the weird one. People edit so much. So uh, much editing. Nah, not so bad. But there's always like a, a warm-up part in the beginning. Like, well, how do you know if you're doing the show or not? Doesn't that drive you nuts? You have to a- you ask yourself that age-old question. But like, it's like you you walk. Is this the show? That's what you say to yourself. <laughs> the, cur- the curtain parts, and you walk on stage, and you just kind of adjust your notes and tie your tie. Right, 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 right. but this is like we're showing up in the parking lot of the high school, and then we're walking into the back door to the theater together. Right? We're not at the part oh. where the curtain parts yet. How do we know when the curtain parts? We don't. Mike does rehearsal. That's how you know rehearsal. That's right. Practice, practice, practice. practice. That's right. How do you get the Carnegie Hall, kid? <laughs> yeah. You say, is this the show? That's what people tune in for. So, we, for, so we're like, we both we pull up in our Camaros side by side. Oh, yeah. Well, we wish Camaros. <laughs> Am I right? Fort Fairmont territory. We shot, shotgun a couple beers, you and me? <laughs> what do we have? We have like an old, a couple old Milwaukee's? No, uh, theater people don't show up in Camaros and shotgun beers. You're mixing, uh, you're mixing clicks. How about that? Uh, like, you're, you're a click mixer. I'm a click <laughs> mixer. Um, maybe we could have some boxed wine. I don't know. I was never a theater person, but I'm just saying the Camaros don't seem like it. <laughs> what do you imagine theater people, people drink? Uh, no, it's specifically uh, out of a Camaro in a parking lot. What do you, what do you think uh, a couple, three theater people meet in a parking lot? <laughs> well, how, first, what do they say? Hello! No, 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 they say, greetings! I don't know. I, I don't even, I don't think they have cars. I think they just, they just don't leave the, the school. Oh, I see. You just, you just you go backstage and they're just there. They're always there. I don't know. Uh, that was my experience with, with uh, the band kids. They yeah. never seem to go home. Right. Because after school, you just go you go to band. And then, and then like the next day, you come back to school and they're there in the morning for practice and you, you're not sure. Yeah, I don't think there was that much necessary. But, you know, part of it, the band room, by the time, you know, even before I was in stage band, which was the beginning of 12th grade, I was friends with a lot of the band kids. My best friend in high school was in band and so i kind of hung out uh with the band kids you know it was a good place i guess what i'm getting at it was a good place to go before school it's a good place to go during lunch a great place during lunch and a, and really not a bad place to go after school if you didn't have anything better to do and and part of it was like the door was unlocked it was a giant room you could like you know mill around it was air conditioned and they had musical instruments, so you could like you could like uh, you know play a Motley Crue song on piano or whatever. <laughs> so I mean, it was very welcoming. It wasn't like I don't know, maybe kids did the same thing with the metal shop, and that was just a different uh, click. Yeah, I suppose I was not in that group either, so I'm also still speculating. Band kids, theater kids, don't know. Hmm. How how would you characterize the group that you hung out with in high school? It's uh, just me. No, um, okay. let's. And then the nerdy kids, really. Like, I mean, all the... All the like D- D&D kind of kids? All the kids who were in all the uh, the advanced classes, whatever. I, I remember on some past podcast, you were, I think it was probably with Roderick, you trying to go through all the different, like, sort of euphemisms they have. 
yeah, nowadays to try to not make everyone else feel bad. But right. when I was in school, G and T was still the preferred term, gifted and talented, or everyone else is just the troglodytes, I guess. Right. Like, I mean, and, and I agree with this, like the whole, oh, political, you, you should name them differently because that's a terrible name. So you call one set of kids gifted and talented and then everyone else in the school is just, that's terrible. I, I think in some ways, hmm, I haven't really thought about this, but in some ways it feels worse that for a time you'd say advanced, gifted, gifted was definitely a thing. Gifted and talented came a little later in the parlance, if I recall. But, you know, uh, advanced was something you'd hear a lot. Um, so for a long time, they did not have a euphemism because they didn't need a euphemism. It was already a, it was already a nice word. But then you'd have that one classroom that they eventually called, what? Special needs or whatever. We're just, you know, every kind of kid who didn't fit in, from a kid with Down syndrome to a kid with what must be ADHD, spectrum kids, we would now maybe say. You know what I'm saying? But when, when I was younger, it was just like, it was basically like just the kids. It was like, you know, the kids that couldn't uh, fit in or were just too much for the teachers to handle. And I don't think there was anything that practical about the decision to put them there, apart from the most practical need to make things easier on the, te- on the staff. Yeah. Uh-oh. So you call that, what do you call that? I mean... There's the other hilarious joke on The Simpsons, the Brown Reading Group, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I'm trying to think of what it was called when I was in school. It might have been called remedial, which is also not a good word. And and I think it was right. distinct from special ed, because special ed were the, were the kids with Downs and stuff. Um, and then remedial was more like what you were saying, where if you are in any way disruptive to the regular class, probably means you're not doing well academically and so we have an excuse to put you into the remedial group and then you're isolated and uh we just never saw those people as you can see i'm adding euphemisms to the list um but anyway going back to who i was hanging out with it was the they're nerdy kids and we were in all of whatever the most advanced classes that they offered and we would talk about our classes and the subject matter and nerdy stuff like computers and that was the that was the sort of little herd that, because we'd go to all you know there weren't that many of these classes so we were all in the same classes together when we went to math right. we were all in the same math class when we went to social studies we we're all in the same you know so that was the group i travel with I, most of which i wouldn't consider uh, to be a group of my friends but there was one or two or three of them and the rest of them just right 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 you know but it's interesting to think your, your kids go to public school right yes yeah, it's interesting to think about um, because I, I I I'm a big believer in the public school system, and I'm actually you know floored. There's a butt coming here, uh, floored by how much dedication you see to pretty much everybody at the school, like to a person. But like I do also recognize how much with the very limited resources they have, you just all you got to do is read the newsletter and know what a grind it is to like run a school. To where like a lot of what you do has to be about efficiencies and about making things kind of scalable. And I guess you got to pass the tests and stuff. So I, I see as much as it makes me sad, I see the potential benefit of uh, carelessly warehousing a bunch of kids that can't fit in. What do you think the school looks at as the benefit of a gifted program? Which sounds, I realize that's an incredibly obvious seeming question, but like when they decide that it's worth a little bit of extra resources to have a program for kids who are getting the work done faster, what do you think the benefit is to the school? 
Well, I I know that these days what we used to call tracking, I think, is out of favor. The idea of right. di- giving up the kids by ability and isolating them for, for a lot of reasons. But I think the main one is the idea that like, so when do you track them? Because it's, it's sort of like once you get into that rut, if you don't get tracked into the right bin because you're developing a little bit later or because you had behavior problems or whatever, then like that determines your whole future. And that's terrible. And we're sort of, you know, making a little class system in our schools that because it really was you didn't see people jumping tracks that much. So really early on. Uh, you can end up on the wrong track, and that's bad for you. But I think the idea for, for the advanced things is there are kids who are not adequately challenged by the like default curriculum um, who want to basically not have them sit there in class and be bored, uh, you know, listening to things that they already know, and also to try to prepare them. So, hey, a kid from our school district can get into Yale or Harvard or whatever, right? So they, they'll need to, to do that. They have to do really well on all their standardized tests and they have to know lots of stuff and they have to take all these advanced classes because that's the table stakes for the the big schools. And so that's what I assume. And it seems like it's mostly probably driven by the parents because parents are like, oh, uh, you know, uh, little Janie is super smart and she's bored out of her mind in math class when you're doing multiplication tables because she's already doing calculus. You need to teach her better stuff. Um, so my tax dollars should work, there should be one math class that is ahead of where the regular people are, and that's what Janie should be in, and that's that's where I assume the origin of this, uh, you know, advanced yeah. stuff comes from. The big, big-hearted part of me thinks, well, obviously, you're a school, you're educators. It's it's your goal to do the best you can for each kid, um, you know, given the resources. But, I mean, I wonder if part of it also is that, like, some of those kids might get kind of antsy and disruptive if they didn't if you weren't keeping them busy you know what i mean you gotta give them some place to to go i don't know man it's i picked my kid up mm, i think it was friday and like there was a situation at the school like as soon as i walked in they buzzed me in because you gotta get buzzed in come into the school and uh suddenly like out of the office people are just tearing ass and including the principal. And they run upstairs, and like a burly guy with lots of keys is just tearing ass up the stairs. And there's a kid, uh, maybe nine years old, just losing it, like total meltdown, kicking, punching. They have to like bear hug the kid to like, you know, keep it together. And like, you know, I mean, that principal, like, <laughs> they're, they're obviously trying to do the best they can in that situation, but it's like, you know, she's got so much to do already. She's got, she's responsible for so much stuff, whether she wants to be or not. And then, you know, and then you got that. And then now that's, that's an hour out of, out of the day is like, she's got to go deal with that. I know that that's the job, but it's like, I don't know. I don't know how people do it. There's not much point to that except to say, on the one hand, I am glad uh, about, uh, what's the term? What's the opposite of tracking mainstreaming or, um, you know, just trying to have a mix of all different kinds of kids and different i'm sorry i'm clicking you hate that uh, and lots of different ability levels and different you know issues and not issues like i think that's really good but like i just what a job you know well yeah like there is a term of art for whatever the opposite of tracking is i just don't know what it is but they basically tried to have you know mix the kids together more they still they still bin them internally but then they try to make groups that have an even distribution of everything because the whole idea right. is that, uh, you know, that I mean, they still I think they still do break them off and give more advanced instruction, but they want them to sort of be together for the main body of the day and the lessons and everything so that the 
the people who are more ahead can help the people who are behind and trying not to make it such a rigid track where it's like now we've we've done based on these tests that you took in third grade you're never going to see these three people again because they're dummies and you're going to be with this group of people and you're going to be the nerds and like i you know i don't trying to suss this out in my kid's school but it seems totally different i think we talked about these four it seems totally different than when we were in school maybe it's because they're not tracking that like the the social groups are not the same. Like I don't, I don't see at least at this stage, nerds and jocks and theater kids and band kids separating out so rigidly. Boys and girls definitely separated out immediately. Like that still happened. But yeah, yeah. I like if I had to label the cliques and all the different kids in the, the elementary school. Like in my elementary school, I could have labeled it. Maybe my kids can label it too, it too. But I just don't. I just don't see those the the strata that that existed and maybe it's because I'm not the one in school and it's invisible to me because I'm a dumb adult now but I think it's very different I like to believe that it is actually different I really hope I really hope it's different than it was when I was in school I I yeah we talked we did talk about this um but yeah I mean just the I don't know I don't I don't see how an adult when I was in school how an adult who was paying any attention could have missed uh in, in any level even in elementary school could have missed the huge amount of um truly violent bullying, like team bullying that went on. And I don't think that happens at this Oh, school. no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't happen at our school. Like, yeah, it's not It's not that they missed it. Here's here's my, my impression of it, and I don't know if this is true, but probably because all these assistant principals are now dead, so I can't interview them and ask them or put them in a uh, shipping container in the desert or anything like that. But the whole idea, from my impression, the whole idea was uh, there are roving bands of bullies, just like those things you see in movies that you think aren't real, but totally were. Um, and they, they are kids from, who have problems. Their parents are alcoholics. They're from broken homes. They've been abused themselves. All these kids have problems, right? Um, school can't help these kids. These kids are going to drop out. The school just like legally has to like watch them during the day and minimize the damage they do. But on the bus and out in the schoolyard, they're going to find the weak, weird ones and uh, pick on them and do terrible things to them. <laughs> when you're back out and about in Gen Pop. Right, exactly. And, you know, one aspect of that is, hey, it's on the bus, it's recess, whatever, at least it's not happening in our classroom and we can, uh, you know, keep those guys separate or whatever. And the second aspect, and I totally felt this was true and I really, really think it was, was that uh, for boys picking on other boys... If the boys, if the victims can't defend themselves, they deserve it because they need to learn to grow up and be a man. Like the machismo from every assistant principal and other school faculty member, like was just, you could, you know, when, when people would get called into, you know, to, to be scolded for fighting or whatever, it was, it was like, uh, you know, kind of get political, but like, like the current, you know, fair and balanced press thing or sort of no fault insurance. Like, well, you know, you sure were slamming your face into uh, Tommy's fist pretty hard there. So I guess you're both at fault here. So just, you know, keep it clean, guys, and whatever. And if, if you weren't such a wuss, he wouldn't feel the need to beat you up. Exactly. And why are you hurting his knuckles like that? Look, his knuckles are all red. Uh, like, yeah. they didn't they didn't want to hear it. They didn't care who started it. And if you had specific complaints for like, hey, last, if, if you were to actually, you know, plead your case be- before the supposed authority figure and say, every time I go out in the playground, big bully, whatever, uh, you know, stomps on my head and takes my lunch and you know throws it in the garbage and this happens day after day and adults stand there and do nothing because they're just too busy smoking and they don't care could you do something about this maybe and they'd be like you know don't be such a wimp right yeah and 
I can't say with authority that that's true because I never actually did that because of, again, the, the code of machismo of being a boy is that you would never do that. You would never go and ask for help from an authority figure. But I saw them there seeing it. And I saw and I and I was called in several times when I did fight back and saw the sort of, you know, well, just, you know, this is no no there is no aggressor and victim here. It is just completely even, <laughs> you know, that's that that's exactly exactly what I'm thinking, which is that I, I don't I think part of part of my beef is with the very definition of that as quote-unquote fighting it's not fighting like fighting is like when two kids in like uh you know newsboy caps have a tussle on the streets of manhattan in the 20s because that's a thing that you do this is kids getting beat up it's it's a real different thing like saying i got in a fight well no you got jumped like (laughs) right or like it's just you know you know abuse day after day after day and then finally the kid fights back a little bit and gets into a little bit of a scuffle and then the adults have to break it up you know all right i guess we'll have to break it up like and yeah. you could totally tell from all the male authority figures that I was ever in front of or ever saw from a distance about this, if the idea was like, this is just part of growing up, stop being such a wimp. And God forbid if the victim of the uh, who was getting beat up or whatever was one of those sissy boys or some other like non-conformant, you know, n- non-masculine uh, archetype, the, the disdain from the adults was just palpable, right? You could feel it. And so... And that is a million miles from where I see my kids in school now, where anybody touches anybody. It's like an inquisition is is, is formed, and it's like, this is not a thing that happens. At any right. point, anywhere around the school, on the school bus, in the, just it does not happen, period. Like, it's, it's one of those zero-tolerance things, which has its, you know, downsides, especially when you're the kid is the kid who's smacking somebody else. Um but there's no way anyone would ever look the other way or, you know, do all the things that, uh, that and so that, that's, that's progress, I feel like. And I hope that progress is actually everywhere and not just in the froofy schools that our kids are in, but it's hard to yeah, know. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. And uh, I doubt the administrators, teacher staff would think of it this way, because, you know, a lot of what we can look at retrospectively, we look, we look back at something and go, well, that seems really ignorant right now. Or how could you not have been doing that on purpose? And this, I try not to open a can of worms here, but I feel like I want to cut some people slack because they never knew anything different. So like, if you're, if you're a macho kid who, you know, or a kid who grew up in that macho culture, and that's, I mean, that's its own kind of problem. But I think they would not put this, this particular way, but I would. Um, I'm going to avoid calling it natural selection. But I, I think there's a little bit of frontier justice involved. I think a lot of those dudes thought that like this is this is good. This is good for society to like be able to weed out these little wimpy kids and like you know have them sort of man up. I mean, how many times in your life did you hear that? Yeah, no, of course, of course. That's the uh, they all think they're doing the right thing, right? And it's you know that's, that's this, is, the this is the best. This is the best thing for this kid, right? If only you would just you know right. get your feet under you. Like, yeah, you're going to have to get beat up a few times, but eventually you get your feet under you. And if you don't, oh well. Like that's the law of the jungle. That's that's what life is like. So you better get used to it, kid. And you know, stop being such a sissy. Like when when will you when will you finally learn to also become a predator? Right, the three gay kids in the school. Well, we're just going to break them and we'll never see them again. Yeah, right. Boo hoo. The, the gay kids get beat up. Right, because yeah, we'll that's, the, that's that. the, the 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 way things should be, and that's just the way. And like it's, it's just terrible. And so the well, other that's what that's what gay kids are for. Like that's the in the entire like sort of paradigm. I mean, that's that their role is that they are they are basically there to be a hate sink and to be the. Um, and I mean, like a, like an earned hate sink, 
Like, oh man, whatever made them that way, boy, have they got something coming to them. And the longer that they are not, this now we're getting back to almost like the village level, like burn the witch kind of stuff. But I, 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 I think that's real. Yeah. And the other aspect of it is just the, you know, the, the non-physical, you know, just the sort of emotional violence, the shunning, the, the taunting, the, all the things, you know, and stereotypically, you know, the, the cliche is that happens more among the girls, like the girls are less likely to be getting into fistfights. So that happens too. But as the girls get over specifically, the whole idea of, be, you know, clicks and being ostracized and being teased, uh, like, all the things that drive kids to feel worthless their entire childhood happening under the noses of an entire staff of supposed adults who are supposedly supervising this. Nowadays, I think uh, the school faculty is more on top of that, again, at least in the schools that my kids are in, where they understand this is the thing that goes on. If they see every single other person in the class uh, ostracizing this one other kid and making fun of whatever thing this kid has going on that's not conformant or whatever the teacher and the staff will notice that and address it as a thing that needs to be addressed rather than just pretending they don't see it or giving the poor victim a pitying look and continuing with their lesson. And as long as it's not disruptive, oh, well, isn't it a shame that, you know, Joni doesn't know how to comb her hair and will always be the ugly girl and everyone else will titter at her and laugh. And that's that's life. But, oh, well, I got to teach my multiplication tables. That's not allowed to go on because they're also trying to teach the kids to be civil to each other and not be little monsters and, you know, be empathetic and get along, even though that's not part of the school curriculum. I feel like that is a bigger part, at least, let's say, of the school experience than it was when I was there, because when I was there, it was really just uh, follow the rules, do the schoolwork, and everything else that happens, you're on your own. Even though we're standing right there, you mm-hmm. know, our eyes turn off and we don't see what goes on, and that's that. Did you see the um, New York Times piece as we were recording this on uh, August 30th? See the New York Times piece about uh, prepping for the debates, Clinton versus Trump? I don't think I saw that one. Uh, it's pretty good. It's basically that, you know, uh, Clinton and her people are just exhaustively, you know, plowing through all this information. Like, you know, and, I, I, you know, podcast I can actually recommend keeping it 1600 keeping at 1600 really good podcast with some people who used to work for obama it's a really smart very funny uh political podcast but they're talking about how like when you prep for a debate a lot of what you are doing is essentially memorizing many 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 facts and in particular sound bites and then figuring out where to deploy them and the other part of it when you're prepping is to figure out how to well especially in this debate figure out how to how to provoke your opponent because i mean you know uh Hillary Clinton is going to be debating against somebody who can be provoked into saying many kinds of things. So her opponent is not doing any kind of preparation. He's sitting around like eating cheeseburgers and talking with his friends, and he refuses to to do any like test, you know, mock debates or anything like that. Whereas Clinton is like, you know, she's a, she's a policy wonk, right? She's just, you know, hitting the books and practicing. But this was a uh, this, I thought this section was really interesting. In, in compiling research to help Mrs. Clinton prepare, her advisors have cast a wide net. They contacted Tony Schwartz, the Art of the Deal guy. Basically, just trying to get, <laughs> as well as unnamed psychology experts they have spoken to, were critical to understanding how to get under Mr. Trump's skin. Jumping forward a little bit. The Clinton camp believes that Mr. Trump is most insecure about his intelligence, his net worth, and his image as a successful businessman. And those are the areas that they are working with Mrs. Clinton to target. That's so elementary school. Remember the worst thing you could call somebody, I guess, gay is the worst, but like poor. 
You know, the feeling that like that was one of the worst. That's probably still one of the worst insults that you can hurl at somebody is that, you know, they are they they are poor. You are not as financially secure as me. You know what I mean? So, yeah, intelligence, net worth, image as a successful businessman. Like (laughs) you call somebody a dummy, you call them poor or basically you target how they're not doing it right. I worry about. I hear stories about that, like that, about the debate, and I worry about the debate because I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm obviously projecting and everything I do here, but I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of like, so Trump is the the textbook schoolyard bully who has his own serious issues that cause him to act out, but he's also like an experienced bully. He's been doing this a long time. His whole life is is bullying and you know puffing himself up to hide insecurities and putting down other people. Like that's it. That's his whole mo. I, you know, you just have to watch his TV show so to get this guy's number. But, um, and he's good at it. Like, he's really, he's talked himself into being, seeming, and feeling invulnerable. And to some extent, it seems to work. Right. And so, what I worry about with the debates is, like, with all politics, that's why I'm not a politician. Like, you don't win an election by being right, you don't win a debate by being right. And so, the whole, the whole exercise in politics is to figure out how to convince a bunch of other people to do what you want them to do, which is vote for you. All right. Um, and people are inscrutable. How can you convince them to vote for you? Uh, almost nothing about your qualifications for doing the job, as John Roderick has pointed out many times, are relevant at all. Um, a lot of it is figuring out what people's expectations are and how you can fulfill them. So if we go back a couple of decades, back to our time when, you know, everyone just had to man up and you had to stop being a sissy. And maybe if you stop being a sissy, you wouldn't get beat up so much. Right. That mentality still exists in the minds of many people. So if I took, you know, like a schoolyard bully from my childhood and put them on a debating stage with anybody else in the entire world, like the smartest person in the entire world, the schoolyard bully can end up convincing everybody that whoever you put on the other side of that, that stage, whether it's like Albert Einstein or uh, Gandhi or any other figure from history, the bully by appealing to your, to your to people's natural sort of like the same, same reason people, you know, people, people fear bullies. So they want to, uh, you know, that's, that's it right there. It's like, if you, you either better laugh along or you're going to become right. Exactly. Or just, just, you know, the whole idea of, of, of toughness, especially if you're running against somebody who is not, you know, not a man, you know, so the, the whole toughness thing, like there's so little Trump has to do to come out ahead in the court of public opinion, Merely by being an efficient, good bully, plenty of people are going to be like, well, I like that guy. This person's in, uh, a wimp, uh, an intellectual, which is like the worst thing you could possibly be. Uh, boring, not fun, can't take a joke, uh, keeps hitting Trump's fist with her face. Like, it's just, you know, <laughs> the, it, it's almost, and so you're, you're kind of stuck. You're like, every rule that we would normally have is out the window here. The whole idea of like figuring out how to, how to provoke him into saying something dumb. I don't know if that's a great strategy against Trump because that's all he ever does, and that's working, right? So, you know, you just and it doesn't it doesn't make him. Problem also is that it does not make him look bad at right, all. It's just more of the same. Like that's what that's right. what the people who find him appealing like. And if he's good at it, if, he, if you've ever seen like a, a bully who's good at being a bully, they can get the entire schoolyard or bus or whatever or classroom on their side, even when they are less you know uh, like in the wrong obviously mean um and don't really have any point other than 
Look at this nonconformist. Look at this person who's not even a white man trying to be president. Everyone and the more, and the more articulate, laugh. I mean, it's uh, it's fashionable to talk about Idiocracy a lot this year. I know some people don't like it. It's a movie I like. But there is one scene in Idiocracy that goes through my mind a lot, and that's when uh, Not Me is on trial. And he's got uh, Frito Pendejo, his, his lawyer, is with him. And even his lawyer turns on him because he, quote-unquote, talks like a fag. So even though he's like the smartest guy, quote-unquote, in the room, it's – the irony is that the more he talks in this way that everybody else finds insufferably fancy, the worse his situation gets. And this is this is highlighted on a, an interview I recently heard with this guy, J.D. Vance, who wrote this book called Hillbilly Elegy. Um, and basically being from rural Kentucky and being the first person in his family to go to college. And he said something that I thought was really striking, which is that, and I don't, this is not a criticism, this is a way to try and hopefully understand a side that I don't agree with. He says that you have to understand that like, if you're out in coal country, and you, whether or not rightly or, or otherwise, you feel like all of these fancy talking people from these big cities with these, with their fancy hair and their fancy ads and their fancy, all the fancy talking, like what has any of that fancy talking gotten us? So everybody makes fun of Donald Trump, just like they made fun of George W. Bush. They make fun of Donald Trump because when you read what he says, like in a transcript, he sounds completely mental. But if you hear what he's saying, you may not like how he's saying it, but he has a kind of discursive elliptical style like probably some other people that you know. But that's very appealing to people because he sounds like he's talking plainly. That comes across as off the cuff, talking plainly. And so, I mean, I don't know if this amplifies your point, but that's part of the problem is the more you become like a good debater in some ways, in a classic sense, the more you underscore how out of touch you seem with the people who do not want to hear a lot of fancy talk. Exactly. So like I, I, I fear for these debates because obviously I'm, I'm pulling for Clinton. I fear that like – it's a tip, I, It I, feels I, like a tipping point moment where like this could be the lock or this could be the beginning of the end. Yeah. I don't, I don't try not to get too wrapped up in this in this election because it's like I don't want to be looking at the polls and blah, blah, blah. I just have my fingers <laughs> crossed, right? But yeah. – but the debates, I feel like that's like a that's, that's like a no win scenario. Like it's almost like, what what can happen in the debate? Can is it possible to like everything you can think of has been tried and and shown to be ineffective, right? So right. all you can it's it's like it doesn't even need to be another person there. It's just simply a referendum on how many people in the United States uh, like Donald Trump enough to vote for him and, and how many don't. The other person on the other side is almost a non-issue unless the person on the other side has a chance of out-trumping Trump. And Clinton will never out-trump Trump because she's not a man. People have tried, and they looked... T- Marco Rubio looked so stupid when he tried to do that. It looked awful. And so, I mean, in some ways, it's almost it's almost as though Hillary Clinton is going to spend weeks, hours, <laughs> weeks of hours, many staff people's time, basically learning everything in the world that there is to know about being an ultimate fighter. But, like, once she steps into the octagon, she's going to be up against the, the, the big guy. Right, and like the, the whole, it's it's like every bad Simpsons skit you've ever seen. Like it, you know, that Simpsons does this all the time, where some some person, whether it's Lisa or Martin or someone else, will have the correct answer, uh, but will but it's it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter who's right. Doesn't matter who has the correct answer. Everyone just points and laughs, and all it does is reinforce the idea of whoever the other dummy is who's rallying the crowd behind them, whether it's Homer or or you know the entire rest of the class or anybody else. And right, and so that's the that's the basic nerd nightmare. Of like envisioning yourself as like I'm the person with all the right answers and everyone else doesn't see that because they're all a bunch of dummies, right? Yeah. Um, and ho- I'm hoping Clinton didn't have that kind of childhood, so she won't have flashbacks about that. But <laughs> or she frees up, <laughs> right? But but the but her staff, like I don't know what her staff is advising her, but it's a boy just to come in with a basic strategy. Should I just kind of like 
uh, should I just plead my case as if he wasn't there and just hope that helps? Like, I mean, obviously with all this politics stuff, like you have to, it becomes a science at a certain point. They're like, look, here are the swing states. Here are the people where we need to do a little bit better with. You have to say these things to appeal to those people. Just do that. And everybody else <laughs> forget about, right? So there's like, <laughs> that that could be the, a valid strategy for the entire debate. But but then you're like, well, okay, well, at the end of the thing, there's also the meta effect of the talking head saying who quote unquote won or lost the debate. And will that move the other groups that I thought I had locked down? I don't know. I don't, I don't even want to think about it. But uh, but th- but this this is definitely a this is a time rewind is going to be if they actually have these debates, a time rewind of the times, the times when we were in school and the bad old days of uh, just angry bullying people and angry mobs around them and no adult super- supervision. Because we, I don't think there's any expectation there will be any sort of voice of reason or supervision or refereeing or or even just judgment after the fact of what was said. It'll all just be about, uh, you know, who got dissed the hardest and, you know, who's uh, who's a sissy. <laughs> I, I, you've seen some Parks and Rec. You're not a giant fan, right? I've seen barely any i think i've seen more from the gifts you post than actually on television this is in some ways such a theme on parks and rec is i mean there's so many things related to this theme there's the fact that one of the one of the hilarious ongoing bits on the show is when they have these public meetings that always just are just (laughs) just awful everybody there comes and asks unreasonable things there's one guy who always starts a chant every time he comes there um, there's, there's the theme of like, you don't want to be in the guy in the office who says something wrong one time. Cause now you're going to be the goat for the next 20 years. And, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's such a theme where you, you get somebody like a Donald Trump coming in. Yeah. I gotta quit talking about this. You know, God bless you that you can ignore this. I am not the kind of person that follows I'm, these I'm things. I'm not ignored. I said, I'm trying not to follow it. I was, much. I am too. And yet I'm adding like two more podcasts a week about politics mm, well, just I'm, because I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm doing better than, than you. I'm well, not, I'm this not is how you know we're different podcasts. people. And, and it's, it helps me keep the crazy down a little bit, I think. And I think, and then I, I think I'm as crazy as I can be. And then I talked to Max Temkin and I realized that like he's spending like six or eight hours a day reading this stuff. And uh, I, I don't know. You're both not in a swing state, so just doesn't matter what you do. Mm-hmm. Except for turnip. Except for turnip. Is that a Parks and Rec chant. <laughs> <laughs> we should only eat ham and mayonnaise. Ham and mayonnaise. Ham and mayonnaise. Chants are surprisingly <sighs> effective. Yeah. <laughs> America loves a chance. That's right. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by HelpSpot. You can learn more about HelpSpot right now by visiting helpspot.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. Now, if you deal with any kind of customer support, you need HelpSpot because HelpSpot is the most comprehensive and flexible help desk software around. With HelpSpot, you can let your customers reach you however they choose, email, web, phone, however works. They can make HelpSpot into the central place for all of your customer support needs. You can turn disjointed email exchanges into meaningful conversations with your customers. Get a quick view of trends relating to your support requests. How about real-time reporting to see exactly what's happening with your support? HelpSpot has all you need. They even help you easily create a self-service portal to give your customers all the knowledge base articles they need. It's all in there. And as you would expect, HelpSpot is a service that they can host for you. You can also run HelpSpot yourself if you want to do that. You get source code access for custom branding. 
direct SQL access to write customer reports, extensive APIs and Zapier integration for connecting to other business systems. HelpSpot is also the best value in customer service. They're committed to giving you unrivaled value for your hard-earned money. Put simply, this means uncomplicated pricing that includes everything you need for your help desk. With HelpSpot, you'll get unlimited tickets, unlimited mailboxes, unlimited custom fields, unlimited reports, and unlimited knowledge bases. All for one simple price with no hidden extras or complicated tiers. How about that? HelpSpot's current customers include startups and Fortune 500 companies. Nothing wrong with that. IT departments, call centers, customer service groups across every industry, they all rely on HelpSpot. HelpSpot is able to easily manage customers that get just a few requests a day, all the way up to enterprise clients with 500 email inboxes. Ooh, that's a lot of mailboxes. Bringing in millions of support emails. No matter where you are, how big you grow, HelpSpot will be there to help lighten the burden of customer support. This is not a flash-in-the-pan company. No flash, no pan. We checked. They've been doing this for over 12 years now. That means uh, the company would, uh, I think they'd be in about 6th uh, or 7th grade by now. They're going to be there when you need them. HelpSpot is free for up to three users. Wow. Super inexpensive for larger teams. Better still, you get an additional 10% off for life when you use the code DIFFS. That's D-I-F-F-S when you sign up. So please go. Go. Go to HelpSpot.com slash DIFFS to start a trial today. Sign up for free one-on-one demo to learn more about how HelpSpot can help serve your support team. Our thanks to HelpSpot for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. John, John Sirkusa, I think we have some follow-up this week. Now we have it, huh? 30 minutes in. What? And the, and the curtain opens. Has- <laughs> the aristocrats. <laughs> um, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Reconcilable Differences. This is episode 34. And I'm sitting down today with John, John Sirkusa. How's it going, John? You're trying to do the. You're making references to the the special episode that not everyone in our audience has heard. <laughs> That's terrific. I, I can't do. I wish I could do the morning zoo sound effects. I don't have a soundboard. Ooga! <laughs> no, she didn't. It's <laughs> got a lot of squishy since I listened to the morning zoo. I don't have a soundboard. All I, I have a bell and some seltzers. That's really all I've got. Your head is slowly turning into a giant soundboard. I was demonstrating to my daughter how many different sounds I can make with my face mm-hmm. yesterday. I can make a lot of different sounds with my face. <laughs> deep, deep <laughs> You're not going to request them, I imagine. I think I've heard them all. I doubt you have. Have you heard me do the chicken with my cheek? The chicken with your cheek. La, la, la. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. It's pretty Thanks. good. I can, do, uh, I can do the throat thing. Uh, oh, I can do different pops. I can do the finger and the uh, side of the mouth. I can do the uh, voila kind can, of pop. Can you do the look like you're pinching your tongue, but you're really not really, really loud whistle that makes everybody No. Oh, you mean like a finger whistle or the shh? You mean like, you mean like, uh, like uh, uh, the guy in Guardians of the Galaxy when he calls his arrow? When, when Merle from Guardians of the Galaxy calls up his little yeah, arrow? Yeah, I remember that, but I don't remember his thing. I'm thinking of the thing when, when he's... A you put your teeth over your lip and you go shh. Like that? No, not that one. This is two fingers in the mouth, like a thumb, Can't do that thumb either. and a middle finger in the mouth, and it's an ear-splittingly loud whistle. Six months of college, I read books. I said, I am no. not getting out of this year without learning how to do that whistle. I either want to learn the, the Merle whistle, or I want to learn the <laughs> whistle. I can't do either of them. Uh, I, I went for the compromise, so I could never do that one either. I can't do, Can you do, do the, the two index mouth. fingers one? Can you do that? No. 
No, I can't do any loud whistle involving fingers. But I went for a compromise. I used what I had. What I had, uh, I grew up in a place that had acorns. And if you take the acorn and you pull out like the round part and you're left with the hat, the acorn hat thing. <laughs> I know exactly what you I mean. can make the ear splitting whistle with one of those, provided it's a good oh. one. Do you know how to do that one? <laughs> no, I don't. You just need to find an acorn. Yeah, so you need a, you need an acorn. You need big, <laughs> Where'd she go? Where is she? She was here a minute ago. Hang on. Let me find an acorn. A big uh, acorn. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's almost as good because really you, you, you don't have the occasion to do it as much, but you're mostly just, you're mostly just doing it to to sort of show off or make a loud noise that everybody notices. But that one, you take, you take the little whistle. round part of the acorn, okay. you're left with the hat. I always feel like it's good if the hat, hat has to be whole, hat has to be big. I feel like uh-huh. it's good if the hat has sharp edges. For all I know, that means nothing, but that's what I like. Uh, and then I then you sort of like take you your make two a little, hands. You make like a little woot, kind of a Wu-Tang thing with your hands. Yeah, you take your two thumb knuckles and you put them together. Yeah. And then you put them over the center of the little thing, and you're going to blow through the little triangle made above your two touching thumb knuckles <gasps> and the top of the acorn. And I think the air is going to go in there and wrap around and come back out. And anyway, it's a complicated grip, and sometimes you get one that it doesn't work with. And then you just put your bottom lip on where your two thumb knuckles are touching, and you blow really hard, and it makes an amazingly loud, high-pitched noise. Ah, oh, I'm going to learn this tonight. This is a thing you can do, unlike the finger thing that I don't even know how the hell that's supposed to work. This is a thing that almost anybody can learn how to do because it just it just involves uh, putting your lower lip on your thumb knuckles and blowing. You don't even have to like blow, especially like you do on a flute or something. I need this and I want this. I'm glad I can probably do this. You don't have acorns on hand though. That's your problem. You don't know my office. <laughs> you have acorns in there. How's, how are things going in your office? <laughs> you see photos is the, of my office. Is the forest started to grow in? Is it look like a Miyazaki movie in there. You got Kodamas shaking their little heads bong, at you bong, as you podcast. Bong, bong, bong. <laughs> bong, 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 bong. <laughs> <laughs> the refrigerator of life and death <laughs> we honor you thank you for, for allowing us here um oh no he, he's got a flute no see here's the thing is you know uh, uh in contravention of everything i said in the first uh 25 minutes i feel like a little bit of a wuss that i can't make a loud not a, not, well, not really i used to Okay, I still feel like a little bit like a wuss that I don't know how. If my daughter was lost at Disneyland and I didn't have an acorn, I would not know how to call her. We've got some different ways of hailing each other that we've been working on over the years, but I do not have a, hey, everybody, out of the lake, time for chow, way to whistle at a group. I don't know if you, yeah, my voice is not set up for that and I don't have any noises. All all I've got is the acorn thing, which, as you noted, not handy. And I can make the owl hooting noise by making a little, uh, you know, cup your hands together. Again, blowing on the thumb knuckles. Do you know the owl hooting one? No. You take your two hands and you put them together. What's it sound like? Oh, I don't know if I can do it in front of the mic under pressure, but you you don't know the owl hooting one? You're just blowing into your cupped hands, and you can flap one of your hands. To, it's like, it sounds like an owl, like hoo-hoo, but that is not, but it's not, but it's not loud. It wouldn't, doesn't get anyone's attention. Yeah. Oh, I can also make a duck. Did you that, do, that's uh, a hand Daffy Duck voice? That's uh, not Daffy nope, Duck. No, can't uh, do Donald, it. Can't, Donald Duck voice. Donald can't duck. do David Sparks does a good uh, uh, Donald Duck. I can't do it. Yeah, that's that, yeah. that one does more play with the kids because they don't know who the heck Donald Duck is anymore. But that was big when yeah. I was a kid, big among uncles. I used to be, I'm given to believe, a pretty good mimic. I used to be a pretty good mimic, and I have almost completely lost it. I don't do, I can't, I don't even know how to impersonate with help anymore. Who were you impersonating when you thought you were a good mimic? Somewhere there is a uh, well, well, well. When I was learning my trade. Uh, there's oh, a, what trade is that? <laughs> trade of impressions. All right, okay, go ahead. I believe it'd be a little something like this. 
Uh, I was in the church talent show when I was around my daughter's mm-hmm. age, and I did Groucho Marx. I did uh, Tim Conway as the <laughs> very, shuffling very, guy. Very contemporary. All the kids love the Groucho impression. My mom. <laughs> I did Jack Benny. <laughs> right. So like, you're doing impressions like, see, this is the danger. This is what I thought would be. This is where it all starts, right? Uh, you're, you know, I used to be good at impressions means I could make adults laugh when I was a kid. But, okay, here we by, go. By doing ah! impressions. I know you love to make the adults laugh. I know you love to hang oh, out with the adults. I did. Right? I lived for that. Right. But that's why you're doing impressions of people they know from their time. And then everyone is impressed <laughs> by a, a little kid doing anything that's even close to an impression. But as I you did an impression the- of, of Jimmy Durante. <laughs> that's great. Good night, Mrs. Calabash, wherever you are. No, I don't even think that sounds like him. No, and see, but as you get older, the bar gets raised. And it's to like, the moon, all right, well, Alice. it's cute when you're a kid and we can tell who you're doing an impression of, but as you become an adult, just because we can tell who you're doing an impression of doesn't mean you're doing a good one. Well, there's a television bus driver named Ralph Cramden mm-hmm. who abuses his wife like this. Mm-hmm. To the moon. Okay, well, I've added that to notes, how to whistle... And acorn cap. We should learn how to do this. I, I would, you know what? I would go to an extension class for this. I, I would go to, uh, to, to a school. I, w- I would take a class to learn how to whistle. Yeah, I, we, I, you know, you do, you do what you can among these. Like, I wish there was a name for these skills. The, the, yeah, the child, useless childhood skills that you learn. We talked about many of them before. Um, I really feel like you invest your time in the ones you feel like you have a shot at. Once I learned that I was never going to be able to do the finger whistle, and I, there was no internet, so I couldn't like watch a YouTube video on how to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, didn't, I didn't feel like I had anywhere to go from there, so I was looking for alternatives. Spent a lot of time on gleeking. Pretty good at that. I snaking. I, I'm great at that. I'm yeah. still really good at that. Uh, you mentioned on one of your other podcasts the thing where you inhale string and bring it out your mouth. That I was... just spit on my keyboard. <laughs> doing a snake a gleek now you could you, you told me this offline you would do the spaghetti nose trick uh yeah that was a thing because it was attainable uh it works um a lot of time on just basic spitting that was early years basic mm-hmm. spitting uh, that, i feel like that's an important i'm a pretty skill. good spitter i can get some pretty good distance right right i mean and then you you just go with like you, you just plain old spitting but then you also have uh spitting with props like uh watermelon seeds or whatever whatever you're going to be working with, your medium that you're working in. Right. You're really just going for distance. Distance, <laughs> Like any artist. Yeah. You choose the materials that are appropriate to what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, distance or maybe accuracy. And then you have you, you start to sh- shade into circus arts eventually. Because that's, that's the whole... <laughs> eventually, someone's got a unicycle out. <laughs> and people, <laughs> people are learning how to juggle. And like, look, here's like the a thing. Hacky sack. A hacky sack yeah. is kind of a community college version of that, right? Yeah, oh, hacky sack definitely. Although hacky sack, I was I was a late bloomer hacky sack wise. It was it was big in my school, but it was in a different clique. So I had to wait until I you know like summer camps and stuff in between years for me to get into the hacky sack stuff. I picked that up pretty well. I should have done it earlier. I feel I had I had a little bit of a gift for hacky sack more so than the other things that I banged my head against for a long time. Hey, you're a Catholic. Um, did you make Palm Sunday palm things? Did I did. Do I was pretty darn good at those. Okay, that strikes me as a skill. That's yeah, that's arts and crafts. Protestants, stuff we don't we don't have that. We have we have popsicle sticks, you know, uh, but we would never make things yeah, out of palm. I, I can I can make a hell of a cross out of a bunch of palms while not paying attention to mass. That was that's a that's a sharp look. That's a very sharp look. Did you get the ash on your head? Did you get all that? Oh yeah, no, the whole nine yards. Did you do first communion and all that? Yeah, I was I was raised Catholic until until I got out of, <laughs> until I got out of the house. It was eighteen years of the, everything everything you've seen. And the, sti- the stick you touch the scrolls with, that's called a mezuzah? That's, that's different. Not to you guys. <laughs> yeah, it's all the same, right? You guys are all just one big rat king of religions up there. <laughs> I did go to a lot of bar and bat mitzvahs. But... You got the Chinese guy over here. 
I got no soup. Um, <clears throat> and we're back with John Syracusa in hour three. We got some follow up. You wanted to tell us about uh, listener Jason wanted to tell us about the endowment effect. I was trying to remember what the name of this was. What did we go through? We, we did I erroneously sun- called it the uh, sunk cost fallacy. No, we didn't call it that, but we, you, we were naming things we could think of, and we could think of sunk cost fallacy and uh, what was what was the context uh, confirmation for this? bias. Uh, but none of those what I was thinking. I was thinking wait, wait of, remind me what we were talking about. I though. think it was probably like the camera. Like after you buy it, you know. oh yeah, yeah. Like once you become like a booster for something. Oh yeah. So it, once you spend a lot of money or are otherwise emotionally heavily invested in something, you kind of you feel like you've got to stick to it. You become a booster. You might be like, oh, Windows sucks. Oh, right? it was also and, it was also in the reviews thing with like asking the people when they come out of the movie on opening night what they thought oh, of it, right. like because they had just paid to see the movie. So anyway, yep. the, the thing that has a name that I couldn't remember the name of, Jason Haynes wrote in to say it's called the endowment effect. We'll link to the Wikipedia page. The idea that you ascribe more value to things merely because you own them. Uh, That is really good. I mean, it's like it's the power of names, right? So everyone knows this is a thing. But if you don't have a handy little phrase for it, if there's not like, you know, a specific logical fallacy or, you know, uh, bias page or whatever you can link to, then you have to describe it over and over again. That's why we name things. You have a little package like, oh, now I know what you're talking about. Uh, and you can wrap it up in a little bundle and then use it to reason about things and tell it to other people and be generally obnoxious with it, like all other uh, things that you learn on the internet. I uh, was um, talking to my daughter about schadenfreude and the, the notion that there are certain terms that – I don't like that word untranslatable. I think that's a, that's kind of a silly, kind of ignorant term. But that where we don't have a natural well, – there is a word for it. It's schadenfreude. We've borrowed their word. But I, I'm very interested in the idea that there are certain kinds of things that – uh, well, you know, you don't, or you know, go back to Rich Holland Sniglets, where you're like, ah, oh, yes, I know that phenomenon. The ability to like change the uh, change the hot and cold water on the tub with your toes, like that's, that totally needs a name, right? Most of those Sniglets did not need, need names. I remember one Sniglet hmm. from my youth. The Sniglet Snig- books, you can't avoid them. They were like Garfield books. They were just you'd go places and there would be books of Sniglets. What was his name? I think it was Rich Hall. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, anyway, um, one Sniglet. I do remember any Sniglets, any like legit Sniglets. I think, well, I mean, I hate to get all Gertle Escher Bach. I think Sniglet is a terrific Sniglet. No, besides that one. Like, oh, do you, sorry. Do you remember uh, actual, any actual ones? See, I'm mentally, I'm mentally uh, conflating it, concatenating it with uh, Tim Kezerinsky's Dr. Bit, where he came up with fake words. So, I, no, I can't tell you a Sniglet off the top of my head. The only one I got is the name for the one green potato chip in the bag, which is such a like pre Seinfeld Seinfeld gag only much worse <laughs> who's going up with this stuff yeah exactly what about those airline peanuts uh charp c-h-a-r-p which seems like it should already be a word but huh according to sniglets it is not so that you know entire entire life's work of sniglets and i just got one word out of it seems not worthwhile <laughs> yes naming is powerful uh you never read those you never read name of the wind series king king killer chronicles uh is that patrick rothfuss yes uh, I, I, I enjoy him. I've met him. He's, he's a very, very interesting fella. Mm-hmm. I was on a panel with him, and I've heard his podcast. I have not read his books. I know people are George oh, R.R. Yeah. Martining him. Yeah, people, well, anyway. You they want his book. You, you well, no, tell me. You haven't even read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, so I feel like it's... it's anyway, he does a lot with naming things. That's only, the only thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, yeah, he's very. it's very interesting to... I, I have grown out of my interest in hearing people talk about the process for how they do things, mostly, especially with writing. It's like, ugh kind of been there but with him he he's a very articulate and thoughtful guy he used to be a teacher am i telling you things you already know 
Uh, no, because you meet all the famous people. I just read their books. Yeah. That, that works out better for me. Yeah, seems like um, it. But he, uh, so he does this show with Max Temkin that's actually really, really mm-hmm. fun. And he, uh, which I, I never miss an episode. And the last two have been about your Vigi games. You should listen. They talk about your uh, uh, White Man Sky or whatever that movie that called. <laughs> White Man Sky would be a great name for the sequel you of got that algorithmic, movie. You <laughs> got al- algorithm, algorithmic planets and then. Uh, yeah, no, I know the game. That's the one. You got that on your PlayStation, right? I actually didn't buy that because I didn't feel like it's my kind of game, but my son wants it. But then I told him, well, you can get it at 60 bucks. He's like, oh, I'm not paying 60 bucks. I heard on the internet that it's lame. Yeah. <laughs> but <clears throat> he does all... You know what? Nobody cares. But he does lots of really interesting stuff. Like, he, he thinks a lot about some stuff that I wonder if everybody thinks about. Like, he reads deeply on, like, all these... On all different religions and religious traditions to figure out how to incorporate into his work. Uh, and uh, I don't know. He has very interesting thoughts on going way beyond show don't tell like how he uses characters to portray things without like as you know bobbing you should uh well you probably already did but i have forgotten uh we did incomparable episodes about his books oh no kidding okay yes so uh, i've not, heard they're quite good actually read them but if you want to hear us talk about you don't them. know me you don't know me you don't, I, I might go home tonight and read it you won't you don't know that i do you think you do i know it i might have a copy of my house right now ready to go you don't. Maybe no. if they made a comic version of it, you'd probably read that. Kind of over comics for a little while. I know, but I'm just saying, like, that would that might draw you in. You'd be like, oh, well, I wasn't going to read this book, but now when someone put a bunch of pictures and took out most of the text and put the remaining text in little bubbles now. Oh, you're saying that you do it with, like, pictures and bubbles. Yeah, yeah, that's very appealing to me. Um, also, uh, I like reading the beginning of books. The beginning of that Power Broker book was really good. <laughs> How far did you get? The, the introduction? Uh, almost, almost 60 pages. De- dedication, the forward? <clears throat> no, I skipped over that. <laughs> Fast over, Daddy. That's the. Um, what have I watched lately? Mm. I watched a superhero movie from the back of a truck last night, and I, and I got a little despondent. Which superhero movie? Can't say. Yes, you can. Yet. This is the part where you say. No, Mike would have to cut it out. No, uh, he wouldn't. But it runs the Schmivel War. Now we saw that in the theater, that's and not, I really, that's not out yet. I was just gonna say, I was just thinking, I should get that on iTunes. But you're saying that's not even out yet? Yeah, it is. I bought it, and um, it, you know, uh, there's stuff I still really like about it, and other stuff where it, I think I'm kind of maybe super tired of the MCU formula at this point. We watched Guardians of the Galaxy uh, part of it uh, the other night because it was a school night. We watched like the first. We watched some of the good scenes from Guardians of the Galaxy. I gotta say, that still really stands up to me. That still is utterly delightful to me. But like, Robert Downey Jr., great actor. Love the guy. But like him and, uh, and the Captain America guy, like just sitting around being pensive and sad. I don't know, man. I, I, I have really enjoyed a lot of those movies, but I think since maybe the original Avengers movie, it, I've been kind of coasting on the strength. Like, I didn't think Ultron was that great. I, I did not like Iron Man 3. Uh, I don't know. See, this is all heretical. But th- I'm just saying this because, like, I'm, the guy, I'm that guy, right? I'm, like, comic books and comic book movie guy. I don't know if you saying. are that guy. You're, you, you're a comic book guy for a while. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if you're the movie. Like, I, I enjoy most of these movies because I have so little stake in them, having not coming from the comic uh, book world. But I mostly have good memory. That's why I want to see it again. I only saw it once. I mostly have good memories of Civil War. I remember thinking the overall story was dumb and pointless, but like I've discussed this before, you know, the whole, uh, you Avengers, 
ever since you've been around, terrible things are happening. It's like we don't write the scripts. Like we saved the world. We're not. It's not our fault that the evil guy took your entire city and dropped it. We were trying to save you the whole time, and they're gonna be like super mad at the, the super guys. Like, yeah, I know people don't have to make sense, but if that's you're gonna hang your whole hat on that entire like anyway, the whole civil war between the two of them and arguing with it just seems like something could have been settled by three or four people just talking some sense into these guys but yes yes but, right but but really i'm just watching it to see the characters bounce off each other and i mostly enjoy yeah, you get that and, airport and, scene that airport scene's a wonder all 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 cgi yeah, like, and, p- there was no airport there yeah and i mean for the most part i find those movies enjoyable the parts i find enjoyable is that the writing is usually vaguely cle- clever and the characters are pretty well drawn where they're not cardboard cutouts there is some sophistication to each character every character only gets two or three lines and they spend those two or three lines pretty well like i feel like the writing there was good banter very good especially with falcon lots of good banter in this one yeah not just banter just like even the, even the, the moments he's all being pensive and stuff even the things like uh like ultron uh where they're all at the farm and everything like just yeah i, I feel like there's good parts in all the movies and the other parts because i don't take the franchise with the characters too seriously as the other parts of the movie are silly as they so often are Man, like even in Guardians of the Galaxy, the stupid, uh, overly serious villain guy. Who cares? He was right. stupid. Like, yeah, they kind of wasted Lee yeah. Pace in that. I, I just mostly let it wash over me. Like, I don't find do you, myself. Do you know who that? You know who played Thanos? I didn't realize it until <clears throat> the other day. You know who Thanos is? Uh, Ron Perlman. No. Oh, good, great guess. So the, 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 same the, chin, right? the guy, the guy, um, the, the the guy, the guy with the chin, uh, Josh Brolin. Oh, yeah. Can you believe sense. that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of makeup and CG there or whatever, but... But once you see it, you, you definitely notice it. Yeah, no, no, it was good. And I mean, there's some elements of it I thought were actually very thought-provoking, given what they had to do in the time that they had. But, you know, like, the whole idea of... I don't know. I mean, sometimes they, I, I feel like they really can't decide what they're doing with Tony. But, like, the fact of that... Uh, that Wow, that woman, that actress... Is it Alfre Woodard? I've, probably not. But the woman whose son died... Like coming to him, yeah. And like causing, that's, so, that's so like I see what they're getting like, at. But I, I like the scene, but but like, would work. that really change him? Right? Would that really change him? And doesn't make any sense. Like it, to be convincing, like look, you can't. They're trying like they're trying to break the fourth wall. It's like ever since these Avengers showed up, the, the world seems to be in crisis all the time. Like it's a movie. That's why the world's in crisis. You can't break that fourth wall and say like, wait a second. I think I figured it out. Someone's writing stories where the world's in peril. And the heroes have like no, just. <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. Like, I mean, they're trying to do like a Watchmen thing where they pull outside. Like, have you really, really thought about superheroes? Man? I'm like, glad you mentioned uh, that because have I ever asked you how you feel about that movie? You, I think you have. Like, and again, I didn't, I didn't read the comic. This right? is this Be- is why I'm asking. Before you, John I saw John the movie, I thought the movie was fine. I saw what they were going for. Just fine. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I don't hate it like the people who love the comics did. Yeah, and so you're aware of that I controversy. Love it. Like, I don't think yeah. I've chosen to watch it again. But I see, you know, it, here's the thing: if you've never read Watchmen. The Watchmen movie, you're like, oh, this is this is some interesting yeah. ideas here, right? Like, because you hadn't seen that story before. Everyone who's read Watchmen, it's like, well, duh, like it's Watchmen, right? But if you've never don't know anything about Watchmen and you watch the movie, you're like, oh, that's not kind of clever and that's kind of interesting because you're seeing those ideas for the first time, as weird as they might be. And the you know the movies are right. Like, I don't like I don't take these that, that seriously. It's not like Star Wars to me, where I have this you know massive lifelong investment. So I. I have a lower bar for them, but mostly it's kind of like the Star Trek movies. And I watched, uh, what I watched into darkness again to remind myself, like, do I still like those movies? Are they still fun? The rebooted Star Trek and into darkness. I, I yeah. thought both of those were enjoyable for all their flaws. Mostly because I watched the third Star Trek and thought that was, I heard that wasn't too great. No, like, I mean, it wasn't, wasn't actively bad, but it just kind of like compared to the other two, it's like the writing wasn't as clever. The story wasn't as interesting. There weren't really any good character arcs. 
it wasn't bad. There wasn't anything embarrassing. They didn't they didn't make one of the, uh, the the actors get naked for no reason in a shuttle just so they could show a picture of her in her underwear. Like they didn't that you know <laughs> not a lot of unforced errors, but not a lot of sparkle either. Yeah, so. it's watching a video. Whatever you, I, I can't imagine anyone being a rabid fan of that movie because it was like it was all right. Uh, one more piece of uh, mini follow up. Uh, it's not it's follow up. It's promotion. Uh, so we, we just want to remind people as we record this, uh, this episode will come out on the eighth of September. But as we record this on the thirtieth of August, hey, guess what? Our special episode for Relay FM members has just come out, and people seem to really enjoy it. We're getting nice feedback from people about this. Yeah, it makes me sad that so few people will hear this, because I thought it was a really good episode. I enjoyed doing it. I haven't listened to it yet, but hopefully when I listen back, I'll find out, you know what, this was a good episode. Uh, And uh, statistically speaking, based on the number of people who listen to this show right now and the number of people who are Relay members, it seems like most of our audience is not going to hear this episode, which is a shame. You should just go, like, they, they have a monthly subscription. You can pay for it for one month and immediately cancel it and just listen to the episode. It's well worth it. Yeah, me. it's it's. I I hope at some point they uh, yeah, give it a year or whatever and put it out. But you know, it's kind of a tears and rain situation because you know <laughs> it goes back in the mo- Disney vault after that, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they have to burn it. Oh, the only copies we ever had. When, when we were in the room, so did you get this at Disney World where there's a station that's like a, basically like about the park? A station? Did you stay in a Disney? Did you stay? Did you stay in a? I'm sorry. Did you stay in a Disney hotel? We did. You did. Okay. So there's one channel like on the TV that's just in this case was all about Disneyland and like it was kind of cool because like you learn about Disneyland you learn about the California Adventure you learn about downtown Disney where we were staying you learn you know just basically it was cool because like we'd read a book but also it was nice to see all that stuff it got us excited about it but we also got to a point where we were a little bit like slap happy a little bit punch drunk where we just leave that channel on kind of as a joke all the time <laughs> it just became be careful with those why things. Be careful with those kind of jokes, this type of thing. Like, ha, wouldn't that be funny if you left that on? And that's going to be like your abiding memory of this entire vacation. It, it's definitely up there, but like there's one line that comes up a couple times in that video, which runs on a, you know, like a 20 minute, 20 minutes and then on a loop. Right. It just runs over and over. But like we, we would just be, we, we got to laughing as a family because we'd be walking through the park and one of us would go, beloved characters. <laughs> one of us who would that be who would say that it started as me but yeah. then eleanor got into mm-hmm. it but it's just one of those things where it's that one guy that does the disney things pirates of the caribbean beloved characters because you know everything's all about like meeting the characters my daughter hates the big head character she does mm-hmm. not want to meet them not hates them she fears them <laughs> she she didn't mind the giant sized cars things like like the fire truck right but she did she did not want to meet tigger God, we, we got that just just under the wire well we, Cut it so close because I never liked those characters as a kid. I didn't really. Want it. I didn't. Oh, want I it. loved them. I wanted all the hugs I could get. Yeah, I know. Um, but no, I did, I did <laughs> not like. Interesting, them. right? Wow. Uh, wait, wait, and wait I didn't, I didn't want to jinx it for my kids. I'm like, well, they're their own people. Who knows? They may not be terrified by the giant headed people, right? So we're going to Disney World. This is what a year ago, two years ago, whatever. Going there, and my wife really wants the kids to have pictures with all the characters, and also she wants to have pictures with. Most of the characters, too, let's be honest, right? Oh, so, that's so nice. There's, like, the line for Mickey is, like, around the block. Right, it's like, no. So she had bought the advanced tickets to, like, be able to get in line to get the pictures with the good characters. So she's got these two kids here. And my daughter was just young enough to be, like, old enough not to be scared of them. 
but young enough not to feel like I'm too old to be taking pictures with characters. So she was the the proxy where, like, this is my young daughter who will now take a picture with insert character name, and it didn't seem weird. Ah. And then my son, mostly because he was at Disney <laughs> and getting every other thing that he wanted to humor my wife, was willing to grudgingly without too much grumbling oh, because like, he was based on based on recent pictures of him and having met him i could just imagine him just groaning through that he wasn't that groany because again like he was getting every single thing he wanted in the entire universe he could play, ball. Vacation, play so, ball a little bit right, he played exactly <laughs> and because he could tell that his mother really wanted to take a picture with snow white and so he was gonna and he, this he got to display his terrible fake smile and take pictures of all the people and that was it the window closed after that because now my son is too old. He would just, I think he's over the limit, right? Would not yep, do yep. that, right? Uh, and my daughter, she's not, like, she was half doing it for my wife to begin with. And now it's totally like, nope, been there, done that. It would never happen again. So there's a there's a tight window where it can happen. Now, with your daughter, maybe that window never existed. Or maybe no, met, she's 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 already she's already like how do you describe this? The crossover is like beyond broken because first of all, yes, she's terrified, but also yes, she's too cool for school. You know? Yeah. I just sent you a photo of our son the like, uh, like, log flume. Like as a two year old, would you mm-hmm. have been up for it? Oh no no no! no too much too much terror. Like oh. you, you, like find the time between between the terror and the and like the I can't do this. I'm too cool. Yeah. Is that, is that you and the terrible hat in the back there? My dad hat. It's got a nice white that's, brim on it. That's the the. You need to have curious George talent behind you with that hat. <laughs> that's a big hat. So, something happened in there. Something monkey related. Yeah, this other family got uh, all up in your picture here. Yeah, I know. You got a plan for the picture when you're picking your seats in the log. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Huh. Oh, God. I had not, I, so, I'll know next so time. You're, you're familiar with World, aka the real Disney. You're very familiar yes. with it. Yes. Right? We've right. talked about right. this. So, it's, 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 it's so hard to have been a child at Disney World. You're, my first experience at Disneyland, I'm 49, and I'm like, well, well wait a minute. Why, why are there people like wandering around delivering food in the middle yeah, of the day? Why is Frontier Lady walking around <laughs> over in Tomorrowland? What is happening here? It's a postage Ugh, stamp. But- it's a shit show, John. It's, it's fun. Don't get me wrong. We had a great time, but compared to the engineering wonder that is and the design wonder you know what you know the stuff where like the music changes as you walk mm-hmm, through the parks mm-hmm. they don't really do that they don't really do that you can you, you walk more on the other in five minutes sleeping beauty's castle is like 11 feet high right it's asinine yeah. Ugh, what a mess but anyway, anyway. For, for the pictures on the ride so you know that what is it the you get the past br- thing Br'er rabbit thing what the oh yeah that's South. what this is that's what this is, yeah. Or anyway, this yeah. Is, uh, which is the uh, I, I know this, but the, but the one at World where the, you go down this big steep watery thing, and like if you're if you're in the audience, you see like this big bramble of thorns, and then the things go behind it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like like so, I was on I wasn't going on this ride because I don't want to get wet. Uh, <laughs> oh come on, really? Uh, it depends on the time of day. I eventually <sighs> got wet, but anyway, um, the family was going on it. And I take this time to like to rest because I was the pack animal for ten days at Disney World in in like August, and so it was tough. Anyway, I'm there. I'm looking. I see them go by. Right. I don't know how long this ride waits. And you know what it's like. It's like you wait. You see the little boat come up to thing, and then screams. They go down. And then the mm-hmm. next boat comes and screams. They go down. Right. Yep. And I can't see which one of those boats has my family in it. So I'm there with my camera, taking pictures of every single boat that goes down that thing, for. 
a really, really long time, thinking, are they already off the ride? Have they circled back to go on it again? Or have they not come down yet? So I have so many pictures of strange people's families, like you do here now, (laughs) coming down that thing with my super zoom camera. Uh, only when we got back to the, ho- the hotel, I could go, you know, go through the Zabruder film and to find among the 8,000 families that took photos of, one of them was my family. And I got a, a picture similar to this, although, uh, my kids' heads were not blocked by, uh, parents' head. Well, know? you probably cannot tell from the very, very high quality of this image, but believe it or not, uh, that's a picture of a, of a video monitor. I know it yeah. looks no, like I can a high resolution. You got the number you're supposed to order it from, like the cheapskates, you know. Right. Take the picture of the monitor. No, no. we did the, uh, as we discussed before, we did the pay as much money as you can possibly pay to the Disney Corporation uh, oh, thing. We, and so, we came pretty close. So we got all the things where you get like every picture of yourself on rides for free and all the pictures, you know, the people in the park will take pictures of you like in these giant packages. Right. And, and you know, it just like shows up. You can just like get it all later. Yep. And so we got it all later. And so we have tons of pictures of us on rides. Some of them came out surprisingly good. They're really good about arranging the, you know, getting the picture of you with magical digital were technology. You there for, were, you, were you there when the wristband was happening? Yeah, we talked about this. I had the, we had the magic bands. <sighs> There's no wristbands at this place. What do you mean There's no, no wristbands? Why do they not have magic bands? It's not everywhere. <sighs> what do you have to do? Carry paper tickets? Ugh. <laughs> No, it was no. Here's the thing. I had a great time, but like I was that guy almost the entire time. I couldn't stop it because I think about being a ten year old at Disney World, the one true Disney Mm -hmm, park, mm -hmm. the Magic Kingdom, which I went to twice or three times a year for my entire childhood. I knew it backwards and forwards. I knew everything. I I knew everything about that park. I knew where people had supposedly died. I knew it all. Uh, And now with this, it's like you go in, you're like, wow, this is kind of like a nice mall. It's it's <laughs> really really. Uh, did I send you that image? Yeah, I sent you that image, right? Yeah. Comparing, yeah. so there's a, there's images you can find. I, I have not vetted this information, but there's an image you can find that shows a comparison. So like over here is the Magic Kingdom shown on a map. Here is what was it? Uh, Disney. Uh, so Disneyland, including all the parks. Here is the Harry Potter place, Universal, I guess. Here's Disney World, including the Magic Kingdom. And it's it's hilarious. Disney World, including all the parks, is about the size of San Francisco. Right? Yep. So Disneyland, they got uh they got two parks and three hotels. It's like ten feet by ten feet, Disneyland. Yeah, yeah, no, it's adorable. It's adorable. The the uh not the Magic Kingdom, but Walt Disney World, I believe it has over twenty was it over? It's like something like six parks and over 20 hotels. They have five golf courses at Walt Disney World. Yeah, to, to be fair, a lot of that stuff at World is, uh, you know, swamps and alligators and highways. Yeah, you're driving, and driving, driving. Between stuff, yeah. but the actual areas themselves are just gigantic. And them being separated from each other actually gives them a reasonable separation. I mean, like Epcot is not right on top of, uh, you know, Magic Kingdom. No, 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 no. Makes- but also the sightline stuff is different. Like at Disney World, I mean, I've talked to Gruber about this. The sightline stuff is so crazy at Disney World. <laughs> They don't care. It's all it's all just Trump loyal stuff at, mm. at Disneyland. Oh yeah, something something we paint a rock. Look at that, it's cars. <laughs> oh my god, it's it's uh, no, but we had a really we had a really good time. We had a, had a very good time. It was very very costly, but we had a good time. Uh, so anyway, the point is, if you go to relay.fm slash membership, <laughs> well, bringing it back is a place you can go. Hey, I'm back with John Syracuse <laughs> for hour four. It costs you as much as a three ounce bottle of water at Disney. We're gonna be prank calling some minorities later we're having a lesbian in bringing in a monkey 
all in hour seven of you got to relay.fm slash membership. And here's the thing. This is not complicated. People, people make this sound complicated, and it's not. I'm a, can, I, can I tell you an honest fact, John Syracuse? I'm going to tell you an honest fact. I accidentally got the Slate Plus feed off of Overcast probably six or eight weeks ago. Okay. And now I listen to a lot of Slate shows. I, I, if somebody had like recommended it, I somehow got the Slate Plus, which is like when you, when you pay for Slate Plus, you get like this feed of all their shows with no commercials plus uh, extra content. As they say on Culture Get Fest, Slot Plus. So uh, I got this and I, I felt really guilty about it because I was like, oh man, like I know Andy Bowers and I feel guilty and like I love these shows. I will pay for these. My hand to God. I have been going to the, the, uh, panoply slate the slate site trying to figure out how to give them my money for weeks i most recently i got thanked by the slate twitter account for for being a member and i was like this is it i can't live this way anymore i went in i've got an account i am trying desperately to give them my money nothing will nothing will work the sidebars aren't loading i turn off ghostry i turn off adblock i turn off everything i turn on flash like an animal nothing there is no way to sign on to this thing it says, okay, two-week trial, deep doop 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 I go to Safari, developer thing. Everything is turned off. Like, open open all shields. <laughs> no way to figure out how to make the Slate take my money. Here's the thing, Slate. Take my money. I'm here to tell you, buddy. You go in to Relay. This is not expensive, and it is not complicated. It is really fairly easy to go in and say, as you say. See, I'm going to suggest they go in, do the $5 a month. Five dollars a month, ten dollars a month. It's not hard, and and I think you can cancel it. You can have it not auto renew. Is that is that? Am I missing yeah, some? Yeah, you giant? totally can. You can pay five dollars for one month. That's it. And so you know, everybody keeps man hooting out of the woodwork. God bless you to remind us how the business model should be different. They would happily pay five dollars for this on iTunes. They have a lot of philosophical problems with this whole idea. <laughs> okay, well we'll get on that. Do do you want an Og Vorbis? Here's the thing. These people work hard for podcasts. I don't need this particular money, but I love this network, and I like to see them supported. I want everybody on here supported. And so, if you would like to have this, if you want to find this illegally, illegally, if you want to find this without paying for it, you can. This is not hard. You can do it, but you will feel better in your heart if you go in and give a little bit of money, not just because you want the episode, but because you appreciate all of the great shows on Relay.fm, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Do you have a thought on this, John? Yeah, this is the type of no-brainer thing that if I was outside uh, the network and there was a special episode of a show I enjoyed, I would pay for it immediately. And it's not, yeah, it would be great if we could sell it on iTunes, but we can't because that's not how podcasts work on iTunes. It's really easy to do here. You click a couple of buttons. I think they use Stripe or something. It happens all in one little floating they thing. Use, they use member full, and it all takes place in this one little window. Yeah, well, whatever it is, it's really simple and straightforward, and you're done, and you can immediately, after you do it, turn off auto-renewal, so you just paid five bucks for what is now ten episodes in the special episode feed. Uh, and it's 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 so easy and so worthwhile. Like do the simple thing that everyone you know oh i don't want to sign up for a thing you don't have to just immediately cancel it like because the eels yeah just it's so easy and then like for everyone else like who actually wants to be a member you know during the special membership what is this like their anniversary month or whatever this is their uh, anniversary birthday month yeah yeah they do this once a year uh, on their anniversary that's when you get the people who just want the special episode the whole rest of the year is when you get the people who actually have a thing like oh i want to support the whole network yeah that happens the rest of the year this time of the year i want everyone who listens to the show who might be interested in an episode with us john roderick to just go get that one episode because i want everyone to hear it because i think it's a good episode and then for the rest of the year the members can 
pay for their, you know, monthly thing for all the other shows to support them and the high-minded ideals that this membership thing is based on. And, you know, I don't mean to unload here, um, but, I mean, the thing is, you can count on one hand the number of times I have asked strangers for money. I'm not even asking for money for me. I'm asking for this for the network. We see some of this money, but I'm, what I'm asking you to do, I want you to listen carefully to my words. Yes, I, I agree with John. I want you to hear this show, but I also want you to support things you believe in. If somebody asks you for money and it's something that you like a lot, consider giving some. That's all I'm going to say about that. So, like, yeah, I mean, we could have a, uh, a lively debate in a public forum about the best way to monetize a podcast, or you could just kind of, like, be a mensch and toss a little in. I'm not angry. There's no better way to get people to give you money than to be angry at them. Let me tell you. No, I'm going to tell you my friend Harry Monkhorse taught me this. Harm Franz Hendrik Monkhorse taught me this. You know what Harry said to me? He said, you know, the best thing, best way to get things in life is to ask for them. It's something that most people never think to do. And also and make you sure you're do a little, it, little angry and resentful when you ask too. I'm not, I'm not angry. You're <laughs> angry. You're the one who's angry because you're libido. And here's the <laughs> That's thing. That's why I'm angry. I, I think so. <laughs> this is the root of so much. You know what it is? You know what it is? I worry about, I worry... I know, you worry about the future of podcasting. I know your concerns. No, no, I worry about my image as a businessman. <laughs> I worry a, about my net worth. business papers. My <laughs> <laughs> you go to relay.fm slash membership. Uh, all uh, all uh, seriousness aside, thanks to everybody who has given, uh, and uh, and we won't bug you about it again. And so go get these. And, you know, you get all the great shows. You get uh, all those other episodes. This is not a long ad, except in as much as it is. And uh, now back to weather and traffic. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace, the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page, website, or online store. You can start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code DIFFS, that's D-I-F-F-S, at checkout. That'll get you 10% off your first purchase. With easy-to-use tools and templates, Squarespace helps you capture every detail of what drives you, because if it's worth the effort, it's worth sharing with the world. Squarespace puts all the power you need into your hands, takes away the pain points, all that junk like worrying about hosting, scaling, or what to do if you get stuck with something. Forget about it. That should be their slogan. Forget about it. It's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can build a site that looks professionally designed, regardless of skill level, with no coding nerdery required. You'll be able to make your website look and feel exactly how you want. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology to power your site and to ensure security and stability, also to insecure that. They are trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected companies in the world. They're trusted by me. Turns out, that's how I run the uh, Roderick on the Line program. It's all done through Squarespace. I've been with them for years. I, I never look back. Never look back. They're the best. Their site templates are stunning to look at. They all feature responsive design. That means your site is going to look good on any size of dingus any device it's it's just it's a it's it's a kind of uh, magic the way that it works that's, that's not, not not technically true there's, there, there's computer reasons that it works but but you don't have to fuss with it i've checked this is just getting started squarespace has tons of awesome features 24 by 7 support with live chat and email they have teams in new york dublin and portland who are there to help you you get squarespace's commerce platform that allows anyone to add a store to their squarespace site including you the cover page functionality, make those great-looking single-page websites. And if you want to stretch Squarespace even further, you got to check out their dev platform. And if you sign up for a year, you'll also get a free domain name. You pick a domain name, that's what your site is called. Squarespace plans, get this, write this down. It starts at $8 a month. That, that's hardly any money at all a month. That's crazy. I don't know how they do that. It doesn't make sense. $8. So please, go. Start a trial with no credit card required. Start building your website today. 
by going to squarespace.com. That is located on the internet at squarespace.com. And when you sign up for your site at Squarespace, make sure to use the very special offer code DIFFS. That's D-I-F-F-S. That's going to get you 10% off your first purchase, and it will show your support for Reconcilable Differences. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Yeah, well, I, I feel like to, to round this out, I feel like we can bring in uh, high school reunions because in our, in our grand tradition of stealing topics from Roderick on the line, which I just listen to usually before we record one of these episodes, so it's fresh in my mind because we just did talk about high school right after we alienated half the audience by talking about politics. Um, half? I really? Hope, I hope not. But You think we alienated half of our I, audience? I really Be- hope Because not. we talked about politics or because they disagree with the spin of our politics? Same thing. Mmm. Same thing. Same self. Same thing. Right. God damn it! It's uh, we're an hour and sixteen in. So, uh, boy, I, someday I got to find out what what you mean by good cop, bad cop. You know, I'm curious. Oh yeah, no, I we'll, don't, we'll do that next episode. All right, right. I don't we'll, have a lot of high school reunions, but yeah, I want to yeah, hear you're already what you about have to John, say. But like, I, I what I didn't hear on your episode of Roderick Online, where you talked about he talked about his high school reunion. Um, did you go to yours? Any of yours? No, none. Mm-mm. It's in Florida, dude. Yeah, I, I know. Florida. So, so. Well, if you've got an email, would you go to Florida? Hey, John, come on down I to just, Florida. I just, went, I just went down to Disney World, and yeah, that that was there. Chimney Christmas. Kennedy Space Center. It's really cool. Wait, did I mess this up? Where did I? Hmm. What's happening? Well, so you didn't. Do you remember Shit. seeing imitations? Was there like a ten year that you saw and ignored, and then a twenty year that you saw ignored? Like, or were you just so far out of the loop that you didn't even see that these things were taking place? The you- last time this was relevant to even being a consideration was probably ten. Yeah, yeah, probably ten. <clears throat> My friend Rich Gennaro, uh was telling me about it and saying I should go. And I was like, eh, I'm not so sure. And then, I mean, there's never even been a question because all the other ones since then, I've been here, you know, and I've had a lady friend and I wasn't about to drag her back to Florida. You don't have to but, bring your, your lady friend back to your high school. That was weird. That's uh, Roderick saying that he brought his lady friend to his reunion. It wouldn't even occur to me to do that. Especially if, I mean, if you're single, but I mean, if you're married, you got to take them. What are you talking about? You do? I don't know anything about these things. You're telling me you, John Syracuse, you get on a plane and go fly to another state without your wife and go to a reunion. Have you never seen a movie? Come on. My wife doesn't want to go to my high school reunion. Horn dog like you in New York? My God, I can't even imagine. But anyway, you, you heard about the 10-year run. I'm assuming this was before the internet and airmail. And, no, uh, and, I, was, I was on the, the internet. The but, but I was trying to, I was going through a stage where I was catching up with, a stage, that sounds awful. But I was, you know, kind of reconnecting with some friends from, that I hadn't talked to in five to eight years. I mean, I got to say, like, after college started, the drop-off went pretty fast. Because everybody kind of went thither and yawn. But no, I was just connecting to some of my, my, my better pals. And the report that I got back from Rich at all was that, oh my God, it was so much more fun than you could imagine. Everybody was so nice. And it was everything Roderick said in that episode. Everybody was so glad to see each other. And like so many of the stupid animosities that you imagine would still be around from years hence, um, gone. That's nice. So, did, you, did you have any regret at not going when you heard that? I had theoretical regret. I didn't have actual regret. So you, I regret so you, not learning how to whistle. But so uh, you can imagine someone might feel regret. You could you could picture that, but you yourself did not feel it. I think I'm broken inside, 
um, I don't think I'm an unempathetic character, but I can also say, Meh, that's, you know, that's okay. I'm not sure. It's not to say anything against the people who did go, because the people that went had a great time. I, it's, you know what it is, knowing me, it's the kind of thing where if I had gone, I would go, oh my God, I am so glad I went to this. I would really regret it if I hadn't gone to this, but I didn't go, so I can't say that. Yeah, I think you would have been happy if you went, but I also imagine you thinking it's not worth the trip, you know. I also, so last dumb thing on this is that I was well out of college before I had to really rethink something about myself. I think we've talked about this on here, but uh, in my head, in my own little kind of personal autobiography, I like to think of myself as a real outsider and somebody who was not very cool and was maybe even kind of disparaged and I like REM, meh. And the truth is that uh, I could be a very awful person to people. Uh, I could be a very unempathetic, very unkind person. And the truth is, I was nowhere near the bottom of the barrel. Like, I was nowhere near, like, low status. I was like a senior superlative in something. People, most people, even if you've got friends on your book, if you become a senior superlative, you're not that much of an outcast unless it's a carry type situation. So I was also wrangling with the fact that I had to really, really rethink like what actually happened in high school and whether I even got it right at all. And I think I never got over the kind of stupidity and guilty feeling of that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I was hearing you not talk about your high school reunion. Because I have some of the same feelings about... <laughs> Sounds like Merlin. No, like, because you, you have talked about it on past shows. And I, I have kind of the same feeling with you know, some earlier episodes where we talked about this, but like... I wouldn't want, like, not that you, when you go into your high school reunion, you're bringing yourself back to who you were at that time, but thinking back to who I was at that time, like, yeah. it's not, it's not a, a, you know, a character that I want to revisit, like. You, you describe yourself so many times, the word you, you have used in the past is prickly. I think you used that word, but yeah. Um, well, I mean, no, well, spiky? I mean, there was a word you yeah, used that really yeah, called uh, out yeah, thorns. Like, the same thing, like, I had so much, like, bound up resentment over the whole, you know, just being a nerd and getting picked on or whatever that you know and it can just turn around and it becomes like uh, you know it's now it's your problem now it's not just like the whole world's problem like where it could have evened out but you couldn't let it go right and it just yeah i was first of all i'm not a social person in general so the idea of going someplace seeing a bunch of people socially like even among my best friends is not a thing that i savor doing right and then just to to go back to an even bigger group of people people who people who know you from the past and who know the crappy person you used to be and then to have to i guess convince them that you're not that person anymore or like i mean ever even if everyone is real nice i wouldn't be going there thinking that people would not be nice to me i'd be going there like if like embarrassed to show my face like yeah i was that idiot in high school that was me and here i am and, now. and just just feeling like bracing it's almost like a, a kind of second or third puberty where like you know the 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 great fallacy or missed opportunity of puberty is not is being stuck in the middle of that situation and not realizing how unhinged everybody is. We talked about this, I, I think, back in the um, one of our early episodes. But, you know, so many people that you think are on top of their game are actually in a terrible, terrible place. And the way that they've gotten kind of powerful by being, whether it's sarcastic or strong or any of that stuff, is covering up something that's way worse than what you have. And you don't realize that. But now you're in your 20s or your 30s. And it's it's really kind of like it's all that again because you're thinking like oh my god this is it I'm going to get called out for like what a what a horrible broken person I am. And the other aspect of it, which is milder and more plays more into actually who I was in high school, is that like 
Honestly, I didn't have that much in common with most of the people I went to high school with, which is one of the many things that contributed to me being, you know, in, in a smaller social group than everybody else. Um, the few people who I did have things in common with, I probably would be able to reconnect with, but those, I suspect they would be the type of people who also didn't go to high school reunions. And the people who would be there are the people who are, who, you know, people who stayed, stayed on Long Island, basically, like, you know, who kept in touch and who are organizing the whole thing. And they also happen to be the group that's, you know, was kind of the, the normal people. And I don't want to say it like in a bad way, like, oh, the normals or whatever, but like, the people who are more in the middle of the bell curve on all axes, right? They're, you know, they're not in every, you know, they're not super smart, but they're not super dumb. They're not super athletic, but they're not super clumsy. You know, they're, they're not amazingly attractive, but they're not ugly. Like they're just, right, but like normal, but normal in that sense of they, they don't really stick out. Right. They, they, they're, they're not terrified of people. They're not the most personal person in the world. They're like right up the middle, normal, nice people. Perfectly, perfectly good, normal, nice people, right? And those are the people who I could could not manage to get along with in any possible way because I was a terrible person. Um, and they're all going to have fun, and they're going to go there, and they bet, bet they're all real nice people and have nice families and kids that they're going to show pictures of, and they're going to hang out with each other and talk and, and have fun and stuff like that. And I still, like, I still feel like I'm not a part of that. Not because I think I'm as horrible as I was in high school, but mostly because I feel outside of that even as an adult. And so... Yeah, I, I would never go to it just because like it, it's disqualified on so many uh, on so many uh, factors. Even before we get to the the point where you consider that it's a high school reunion and a specific guest list, um, but I do feel kind of bad for not going because I feel like it. You know, it almost feels like oh, you're too good to go to your high school reunion. It's like it's more. It's just more of the same BS from high school. But it's like no, that's not why. Uh, not really. I'm not going for slightly different reasons, but the result is the same. You're pulling yourself out of you know these the the social circle where you didn't feel a part and now, right. you're, now, now you're doing and like the, the effect for, for the people who see you not there they don't know what why you're not there and they don't care one way or the other so but there's a secondary knock-on sadness uh, and i think this came out of the hobbit tendency episode but something i mentioned about how I, I i get introversion better than most introverts would like to think uh most self-described introverts i i get it believe it or not because <laughs> i am not way a lot and just because I can talk a lot of podcasts doesn't mean that I want to go out of my way to go be in a bar with strangers. That's not going to happen. But uh, but like it's sort of like you said with like your hobbit tendencies and wanting to be in your hobbit hole and stuff like that. But the point I was trying to make of like, well, you know, the other side of that is we need you. Like we want you. And that's the double sad for me as I was like, not even like, oh, they missed out on the grace of my presence. But like an event like that, it, it's so important that lots of people come and lots of different people. And you go, I wonder if this person's going to be here. And like if that person did come, everybody would be so happy. It makes it more and more and more complete. And when you're not there, you're like a missing tooth in some ways. Even if you're somebody inconsequential like me, it's still like, oh, man, that would have been so cool if they were there. And like the more of more people like me that cop out of stuff like that because they're like a, a whiny loser, like the sadder that is for everybody. You know what I mean? Like you don't you feel that a little bit like, oh, I could have been there. You well, know, I could have contributed. I like to think slash I don't know if they like to think that so many people in my high school were neurotic, uh, like off of that central central bulge of the bell curve inside their own heads about so many things. Certainly most of my friends and the nerdy kids were all inside their own heads about this stuff. But in general, just across the whole spectrum from the band people to, you know, the, the heavy metal people to everybody was just all inside their own heads about almost everything that the the bell curve was a narrower bulge 
right? And I imagine the high school reunion was filled with the people who are reasonably well-adjusted, nice people who maybe have kept in touch on Facebook or whatever, maybe didn't move off Long Island as much. And in general, they are the ones who organize the reunion and then they, then they go to the reunion. And that everybody else was so sort of fringe and felt outside. Like, you know, like you said, feeling like you're an outsider. Like, I feel like the entire school felt like they were outsiders except for this this skinny little strip of people who are actually reasonably well-adjusted, nice people. And everybody else had something terrible wrong with them and or wrong with their living situation or family. And so all of them, I imagine, feel similarly. Now, I didn't look at what the attendance was in these various reunions that, that I've been invited to, but I imagine what I'm saying is I imagine attendance was low and filled with mostly nice people, which is not the worst thing that could happen, but you're right. For all involved, it, if attendance was mandatory, it would be a better high school reunion for everybody there. I would not I would not vote for that mandatory high school reunion attendance. <laughs> no, no, like Australian voting. Yeah, exactly. You must attend your high school reunion. Can you just take the fine? You take the jail time. Is that no? <laughs> I would take the jail time probably. I think Australia, with all due respect to Australia, I mean you guys got a lot of problems here. You got the spiders. I think they should be circumspect about how much they call attention to being basically a giant prison. It would be like Georgia making people vote. I mean, come on, really? <laughs> yeah, I now I feel bad. I should go. There are this is this is there's a bigger issue though. I mean, there's all kinds of things like this where you know, I hate to admit it, but there's so many things where I'm like, I'd rather just meh, stay home. Blah, blah. And then I go to a thing and I'm like, man, I'm so glad we did this. Because my wife, of course, is the one who makes us do stuff. Because my daughter and I would just sit around like all day. And she makes us go places. And at first I'm like, I don't know if I want to go to a place. And then we go and it's great. Yeah. And I'm like, I, this is a day I will value this thing that we did, this dumb thing that we did, just driving across the stupid bay on the stupid orange bridge to have a stupid hike and a stupid lunch was actually totally fun, and I'm super glad we did it. So that sounds appealing because there won't be other people there. Well, you're also you're, you're being big about not bringing in things like travel, which I know are not an easy thing for you. But even like, I mean, do you go to like Pearl meetups in Boston? <laughs> no. <laughs> do they have such things? There. Yeah, they do. Okay. No, I don't. I don't go places where other people are. But you, it's the same dynamic here. My wife always having us go do something, do a you thing. You can't control the characters. Oh, but also, <laughs> you no, know, you got to go to work and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you got to do that. They, they pay me for that. So, but yeah, just yeah. like the, the recreation, like just you know, again, want to sit there and just do nothing, and then just like, oh, we got to do a, do a thing or whatever. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. But you got to do what you got to do. Okay. Well. Hmm. Okay, so think about the continuum of different kinds of events. Like, what are the like what are the kinds of event of events and going to things that are? And I'm pivoting here because because it's making me sad to think about high school. But like w- going to stuff. What's the kind of thing that you don't mind going to as much to other as, as other things? Almost nothing. There's certain kinds of things. Really, almost, almost nothing. nothing. I don't mind going to the the ideal scenario is going to a place I've been to before, seeing people who I've know really well. Mm-hmm. So you got to go right into the you got to go into the comfort hobbit pocket there where it's like all right uh am i going someplace i've been before uh and does it not involve boats or airplanes right then it's like all right well that part the travel <laughs> check the travel part of it is, is you know or ideally not having to go anywhere and the second part is the people who i'm seeing there do i know them and do they know me so i don't have to worry about anything that is ideal as are you know the worst is going someplace you've never been before on a boat or an airplane to see a bunch of people who you don't know so that's kind of the, that's kind of the continuum. 
uh, I have I have many varieties of kryptonite. Uh, long distances, expensive trips, being away from my family uh, for too long. Like an afternoon's nice, but too much is disruptive. Uh, I hate spending a lot of money on stuff that doesn't seem useful or important. Um, having to deal with the kind of the business stuff of travel. But when it even comes to any kind of event, here's the thing where I'm still perma-broken inside, is I don't, I don't like cute events with activities. I don't like having to like uh, go to stations and do stuff. You know what I mean? Like the whole kind of like, you know, um, baby shower kind of thing. Like that, that's the thing that I still feel <laughs> you don't like, like structure. I, I don't like programmatic mirth. It puts me deeply into Holden Caulfield mode. <laughs> Could you write that down, please? Um, yeah, like the whole like let's Mandatory taste baby fun. food. That's a Weird Al album, isn't it? I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I and I, you know what? I want to be better at it because, like, the thing is, like, uh, if people are out dancing, I'll go out and dance. I'll dance. I'm not against dancing. I'll get out and do stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll put on the, the the jokester and have some fun with people and play along with tricks and do a toast and stuff like that. But like, when it comes to like. I mean, even the chicken dance. I'll do the chicken dance. But there's certain kinds of, like, programmatic mirth that really set my teeth on edge and just just activate some sleeper cell of emotional brokenness inside of me that I have no control over. And I just really want to leave before that happens. Sometimes, you know, that could be, like, an overly planned out, like, excursion. Like, I just, I hate the whole, like, don't hate, that's the wrong word. I I am very resistant to those to being corralled into fun. So, you, but you'll do the chicken dance. That's like way over the, the line. Chicken that I would have imagined. Very, like, because oh, talk about talk about uh, mandatory fun or programmatic mirth or whatever your uh, your alternate band name is. Like yeah. weddings, that's all they are. All they are I is know. like the structure and just the, there's these events and there's a different thing. And you're fine with all of that. But then as soon as L- someone... Little girl dances on Abe Vigoda's shoes. I mean, there's, there's these are rights. These are the kinds of things that uh, people love. I think normal people... And let's see, here's the thing. Okay, you ready for this? The call's coming from inside M. Night Shyamalan. What if those people don't actually enjoy it? They're just really good Ever, at pretending to and I'm just the going dick. through the motions? No, people enjoy it. Yeah, Some people, I right? I mean, you do. I you enjoy I... the chicken dance. You're out there doing the stupid chicken dance. You're enjoying it. I'm I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and you know I, I've been to some I've been to some events at the mall in Florida where you do the chicken dance. Yeah, I'll I'll do the chicken. Well, so dance. I'm trying to think of the categories that you don't like, like, like baby showers or bridal showers. That those are bad because you like. I mean, what's uh, it's like maybe where you got to paint a plate. Or something or like that involves... Things you, things you do in a corporation, like a corporate fund. Uh, oh, uh, you ones. know what? Yes. Uh, yes. Those, I mean, those don't happen to you in, in your real life, but but that's that's the obviously extreme, where it's like literal mandatory fun. Where, you, you know what? You triggered me. You triggered me. You should have given me a trigger warning. But yeah, those kinds of events were in the 90s. Everybody would show up in, in, like in chinos and a Ralph Lauren shirt. And like talk about golf and stuff, or you do, yeah, do trust, no, that's do trust falls and rope courses and write down words that define you and sticky notes and put them up on a board. Have you had to go to many things like that uh, in my corporate life? Sure, yeah, for real, for real. This stuff, I want this to stuff hear is more real. about. I've heard this is real. How do you think Marco would do it? Something like that. So here's the thing about everyone's like, oh no, I could never do a thing like that. If you need money to live, you will do it. <laughs> that's how it works. 
Uh, or you will wow. find <laughs> you really make a hell of a case for it. exactly right. That's what I'm saying is like if you can find an alternate means to get money, then you won't do it. Like I, I can't imagine there are people out there who, given the choice, it's like you could do this or you could not have to do this. Would be like, oh, I'll do that. Like very few people, maybe the people who run these things are the only. Actually, that's their job, so it doesn't even make sense there. Like no one really wants to do this, but. There are so many things in just like a regular J-O-B job that you just choke down because it is like it's part of what you have to do. Not, yep. not every part of you know, everything my, is my wife, My wife is great at this. She's fantastic at this. She's like, hey, there was free food today. And she's like, oh, I'm like, oh. I'm like, I'm like what kind of free food? She's like, no, it was really cool. And everyone was there and they shared their posters and stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, so that's the eventual strategy. like you could say hey, after, after your spirit's been broken. But the nicer way to look at it is like, look, you just have to be an adult about it. It's like, well, is there some way I can try to have some fun about this? Is there some yeah. way I could learn something or get something out of it and not spend your entire time being a sullen teenager going, this is stupid. This is stupid. I don't want to do this stupid. I'm smarter than this. There's nothing I can learn from this. And this is I think dumb. You're a phony. This is dumb, and this is a bunch of phonies, and they don't know anything, and I know more. Like, you have to grow out of that. Uh, otherwise, you'll just be miserable in all these things. I mean, I'm not to say that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Not, I totally agree. Not to say that they're fun, and some of them are going to be worse than others. I feel like the worst ones are, like, this is this is the flophouse uh, axes of things. The worst ones are the ones where you're bored. Like, that is the worst, because then you literally start falling asleep. And mm. it's actually better to have something that's just embarrassingly awful and try to find a way to have fun with it or tolerate it or whatever than it is to be bored. Because boredom is really tough to come back from that. <laughs> the 10,000 10, BC principle. It's better to be terrible uh, and interesting than to just be dull and sleep-inducing. Body mean a body coming through the rye. Yep. God, I, you know, I, I will remember that Far Side comic more than I remember that book. That's what, 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 what happens in it? The magic of oh, the, the Far Side comic? Yeah, I don't know that one. You just said it. For, oh, I, that's that's what the title comes from. I know, but like it's far the Far Side. Yeah, side. You'll, you'll just write body me to body Far Side. You'll find it. Body. Far Side. Toe tags, right. man. Toe tag. Oh, oh, <clears throat> yeah. Give me a minute here. Let's see. Oh yeah, uh, I can't find it. I'll, I'll look it up later. But you know, you triggered me again, you son of a bitch. Uh, we talk about the far side because then you know what that makes me think of like funny ways to decorate your desk and like wacky wacky shirt day kind of stuff. Oof. Yeah, and even that. No, stuff- and I'm not. I'm not. See, the thing is, though, I don't mean to be a Marco on this. God bless him. I love Marco. I, I, I am. I, I tend to side not side with you, but like I get what you're saying. You know, when you're like, well, that's a thing you do. You know, sometimes you got to have meetings because it's work and people need to know what you're doing. And if you go into them rolling your eyes so hard that it's audible, that's not helping anybody, including you. Yeah, you will not you will not be successful in your career if that's your attitude with everything. Because the, the, the job, <laughs> they got to, they got toe tags. That's funny. The, the job is. Did you find it? I, I got it. I found it. It's a far side comic, and the bodies are coming through the ride. That's funny. But it's, but they're dead bodies, you see, because it's the far. Oh, side. they took it. They turned it. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I just want to say, well, I see that picture in my head of the little comic. But uh, but yeah. Now, the, if you're just going to go everything into these things like this with a bad attitude, like it's the thing you learn as a child when the the entire world is more or less arranged to to cater to you, and then if you keep that same attitude when you're adult. Yeah. The job's not there to cater to you being grumpy about stuff. Like, they'll nope. find someone who's going to go with this thing. Because in every one of those things, there's something you can learn from it, something you can take out of it. Like, just you just have to you just have to get through it. It's not going to be the most exciting thing in the world. Some of them are silly, but you have to have uh, 
some kind of an open mind. But like the ability to deal with that, I think, is a is a good life skill. Because, I totally agree. Because if you never develop that life skill, so many things out there in the world are like that, and it's like some asinine thing that you have to do that's not amusing that you think is stupid. Uh, but you will have better results if you can go through that without making your internal monologue about how stupid something is clear to everyone else around you. Um, I agree in lots of ways, um, ways that may not be evidenced in my life, but uh, I do agree with you. I mean, one is that the more constant control you have over every aspect of your career, the less tolerant you will be about accepting challenging certain kinds of challenging things because it just feels like, ooh, that's that sounds hard or that sounds awkward. Like that's something I've faced in the past is like wondering about like, wow, well that would take me out of my comfort zone. And some, sometimes you can become successful enough that your comfort zone can become surprisingly large, but you may not even realize it's a comfort zone because you never get out of it. Uh, but there's also like, there's something, this is probably my Midwestern Protestant part talking, but there's also something good for the soul in, in having to go do stuff you don't want to do. I know it's true for kids, and I think it's true for me. That's not, you know what I mean? I, when I say don't want to do, I'm not talking about like forced labor. But I mean, going to PTA meetings is really good because, first of all, you learn a lot about what other people think without guessing, right? When you go to meetings with other people, just in general, you learn a lot about what other people think without guessing. And like you have to like retest all, a lot of your assumptions in reality. And also, it, you know, it doesn't hurt to just have an ass in the seat at a place like that because they could use the the support. But I don't know. I agree with you. It's, I don't think life has to be a terrible test all the time, but I don't know. I think you have to be careful about making yourself so comfortable. You can get so comfortable in, in what you're doing and get so much control that you lose track of what's actually happening in most people's reality. So the opposite of this that I see a lot, I don't experience myself at all, obviously, but the total polar opposite of this are the people who, f- who feel like they're who the, whose formula for success is, like they learn early on that there are a lot of things out there in the world that that are outside their comfort zone. Because when you're a little kid, you have a very small comfort zone because everything is new, right? And they learn, uh, you know, this thing may be outside your comfort zone. Maybe it's standing up in front of your class and giving a speech. Maybe it's like going out for a musical or singing or like whatever it is. So many things are outside your comfort zone. And they learn that the path to success and acclaim and, uh, you know, just generally doing well in life is you have to push yourself to go outside your comfort zone, which is a thing we all learn to some degree in the process of growing up. Um, and so all the things that they have the opportunity to do, they train themselves to say yes to, to be fearless, to try all sorts of new things, which honestly is the way successful people get successful. Sorry to spoil the secret. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing that they do uh, that we're all terrified of. But anyway, that's why they're successful because they do those things. But that can also be a pathology. I see many people in life who I imagine, <laughs> you know, or who seem to me that end up saying yes to things that commit them to a life that actually is not good for them and not enjoyable. They that they say yes to things that are outside their comfort zone and eventually start saying yes to things that are outside the realm of things that are good for their well-being, who take jobs doing a thing they don't actually enjoy doing with people they don't actually like, who put themselves uh, under too much stress, who, who labor under conditions that are not good for anybody and do so because they're executing on a program that they established early on to go outside their comfort zone and say yes. And that's how people get into careers where they spend years and years with a terrible, with a terrible boss 
doing something they don't actually like doing and then wake up one day and say, you know what, I actually really want to do something entirely different. And hopefully they snap out of it and do that other thing. But other people just, they convince themselves this is what life is like. And it's like saying yes to everything going outside of your comfort zone is a strategy that works until it doesn't, until you just start applying it to like, well, I guess this is just what it's like. And I guess I just have to let my boss yell at me every day. And even though I don't like insurance, I've been selling it for five years. So I guess this is my life. And like, that is the anti-pattern, which obviously neither of us have any fear of doing as such prima donnas. But, yep. uh, but I do see people who seem to be in that situation where it's like, do you like at all anything about what you're doing? Why are you taking on this stress, this responsibility? This thing? Like, what is the reward out the other side of this? Like, step back and say, and it's like, well, you know, like, I don't want to be a prima donna who just does things that they're comfortable with. I need to, I need to, to be successful. I need to try new things. And so somewhere in the middle, far away from the extreme that I'm on uh, and far away from that other extreme is actual success. But that's, that's why you have to keep revisiting your, like, uh, you know, your execution plan and take a look at what you're actually doing. And, you know, say like for me, I'm always, you know, questioning how I have to push myself. And for certain other people who train themselves to go after everything, I had to learn when not to go after stuff. Hmm. And I don't know, you might have had a little bit of that. Do you ever feel like you've ever gone after something that you eventually found out is not a thing you actually want to be doing and just went after it because it seemed like... I mean, I see both sides of what you're saying. Uh, You know, there's a thing that's been attributed to Stephen Covey, somebody I I don't think much about attributing to, but there's a phrase that he used in one of his famous books where he said something along the lines of making sure that your ladder is against the right wall. And boy, what a douchey tech or uh, business book kind of thing to say. But boy, when I heard that phrase, it was like a bolt of lightning. Um, kind of like a little Zen slap moment to hear that. Because that really resonated with me. Because I was like, well, first of all, because it explains a lot of theoretical things in life about why we're not happy, even though we're doing everything right. Um, and it ex- explains a lot of, you know, not just vocational and business things, but personal things too. And it leads me to the kind of stuff that led to this little mini career for me, thinking about, like, are you solving the right problem? Uh, you know, something that I became kind of obsessed with thinking about. So, yeah, I absolutely have. I mean, maybe that's the way to phrase it is, you know, is your ladder against the right wall? Are you solving the wrong problem? And, like, but, you know, trying to figure out, like, is this something? So here's the terrible inflection point in some ways, which one hits again and again. Um, should I. Am I not doing as well as I'd like, or am I not where I want to be because I'm not working hard enough? Or, or usually people present it as an or. Am I not working hard enough, or am I working hard at the wrong thing? And like, I think sometimes it can be both, and sometimes it can be neither, and sometimes who knows. But like, that's a little bit of the artfulness in life. You know, it's why it helps to have your iron in several different fires to mix many analogies. I mean, is that, am, I, am I answering your question? Do you want one examples? I mean, there's lots of things where I've been like, oh, I really like the idea of doing this thing, but ugh, when I actually put my hands to it, I don't actually like that. I really like listening to music, but I do not want to play trombone. I thought I would like that, and I don't. Yeah. Um, so should I try harder? Well, should I like make myself love this? So it's like people who have had what some people might describe as multiple careers, like, oh, when they came out of school, they were a house painter, and then they sold insurance, and then they were a teacher for a few years, and then they eventually got into, you know, writing software, and then they switched to writing magazines. Like, what, like people have multiple... Usually people don't have a lot of them, but yeah, enough careers where... You- they usually tell that story based on where they are right now, as though this is the final chapter. Right. Well, but, you but- know, I moved around I moved around a lot, like in my dad's case. Well, he had lots of different jobs. He worked in broadcasting, he did these things, but then he finally got a job at this sporting goods company where he got along really well with the boss. 
And that seemed like the story until he died. And then the story was that he died. That's, you know what I mean? That really changes the whole story. And like, so you think you know the story. You go, oh, it's nice to see you, Jim. Or like we said with Roderick, like I said with Roderick, like, oh, you know, how's uh, Greg? Well, Greg and I aren't married anymore. Oh, like, yeah, I haven't talked to him since 1992. I've actually divorced two more times since then. At every milestone point, they would describe that story as essentially ending where they are right now. When Who knows how many chapters are left? I think there's a little bit of a stigma of people who like, oh, we couldn't decide what you want to be. So you've had too many different jobs, like the whole hopping around. But, it, you know, it's, it, I think it's healthier to do that, to realize three or four years in that you don't want to be a teacher. Like you thought you might want to be a teacher, but now that you've been teaching for a while, rather than say, well, I guess this is my life. I just got to suck it up and just disassociate myself from my lifeless body that just sits in a classroom and teaches students by rote year after year decide actually there's something else that i might rather do and even though it's kind of like a reset and i'm not traveling the beautiful path of like whatever career trajectory i imagined i have i've actually realized that this is not something you know like i challenged myself i got outside my comfort zone i wasn't sure i could be a teacher and the challenge drives you for a little while because like i'm, I'm gonna do this i'm gonna be a student teacher i'm gonna teach in a, in a difficult situation i'm gonna overcome uh, this I'm gonna I'm gonna get the skills that I didn't have before to become a teacher, and you come out the other side, and you're an actual competent teacher, and you'd be like, yeah, but I don't want to be a teacher. I don't like teaching. And there's right? a little bit of I don't know if it's endowment or sunk cost, but there's also that thing of like, oh, I've just found out something. I guess I kind of always knew, which is if I get a master's degree, I can make another eight to twenty thousand dollars a year. Un- unclear, but definitely I could make more if I had this particular degree or this particular certification. Isn't that kind of part of it also? Is you're like, well, I guess if I'm in, I should go all in. Yeah. Well, that, that's in which case, like... That's how you can find yourself, like, digging the hole deeper instead of realizing this is not even, you know, whatever, your ladder is up against the wrong wall or whatever. And I, like I said, if you meet people like that and they tell you that story, like, oh, I did this for all of that. I feel like people, like, look askance at them to say, well, couldn't you just figure out what you wanted to be and just do it? Because the American ideal is, like... You yeah. pick your career, you go into it, you advance, and you retire at the peak of your career, having had a successful career, and blah, blah, blah. But, like, it just seems like such a rarity these days, not only because everybody has 50 jobs, uh, but that, like, who knows what you want to do with, like, think of all the things that you've done with your life. Who knows what you want to do with the time you get out of high school well, it's, or it's, college? It's so ludicrous. It's so, I mean, to me, uh, for any variety of the reasons you gave, and probably more, it's so ludicrous to me to imagine that somebody at 25, let alone 16, is in any position to decide what kind of a person they are. Your brain's not even done developing at that point. You know, if you're 27, you're allowed to be a little bit crazy because you're 27. But if you're younger than 25, oh my God, you have no idea how many worse mistakes that you are going to make, even based on good decisions that will lead you to bad (laughs) mistakes and decisions later. But like, you haven't seen anything yet. (laughs) I mean, unless you like served in NAM. Oh my God, you have no idea. And like, but you know, but at the time, everything is such a, such a drama. And like, I do you remember having that overriding, I guess you've had this all the time because you, uh, you are a self-described neurotic, but that constant sense of like, ah, if I lose this job, that is, that is it. I have got to pick a lane and just run. Like, how am I going to be able to like retire at 40 unless I like really get great at this thing and get rich fast? Yeah, that's, God, I have so many anxieties around that. It's, Yeah. <laughs> But uh, retroactively or no, just like, all, about, all the time. Like I, I remember, Oh yeah. I remember reading like, so the people who don't have these anxieties who are actually successful, uh, are, are reading it phrased this particular way by, uh, one of the people who was successful. Like, uh, 
how it occurred to them that it might be a good idea to solve the money problem once and for all, like early on, and then just not have to worry about it anymore. That's why, obviously, the best career for everybody is to be independently wealthy, because then you have, if you're independently wealthy, then you have time to indulge all your different hobbies, which will vary with your interests, without worrying about any one of them actually being able to sustain you. So I highly recommend that, if you have the means. Uh, but <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the whole idea is like, you know, oh, I just realized when I was when I was 18, if I could just do this, I would solve the money problem once and for all and then just not have to worry about it for the rest of my life. Won't that be a relief? And it's like those people don't ha- don't understand what the money problem is. They don't have money anxiety. If they did, they would never be successful. <laughs> you can't be successful if you have anxiety about money because you'll take the safe job and you'll never actually become rich. Right. So my problem has always been anxiety about stuff like that. So I never take any risks and never do anything all that exciting and don't actually get rich. Um but yeah, like, and the sort of the, the bitterness of being like, oh, solve the money problem. Yeah, let me just go do that. I'll just go solve the money problem. Like, it's a little, like, it's a little clever. It's like a Sudoku. I'll just solve it and it'll be like, oh, I solved the money problem. Now I don't have to worry about that anymore. Boy, I don't wonder why the <laughs> rest believe- of these dunces don't just yeah. solve the money problem once and for all. Seems so easy. I just worked. Why, like, why did nobody ever do this before? Just, just to solve the money problem. I just worked really hard for three years because I'm a really <laughs> hard worker and I just solved yeah. the money problem. And now I'm a multimillionaire. Every multimillionaire who worked really hard for three years, and they did work really hard for three years. Yeah. Uh, thinks that everyone else in the world is a dummy like this a lot, is the, lot of the, people out there are working for more than three yeah. years and they're still not solving the money yeah, problem they're, they're, the untravelable thing is like oh all those people think everyone's a dummy because they didn't do what they did and there, there are some people out there who eventually uh, you know attribute their own success to silly things or whatever but but part of it is that if you're constantly living in fear you're never gonna you're never gonna take the risks required to do that thing and then the other thing is that thousands and thousands and thousands of other people who take those same risks and end up destitute with maxed out credit cards living yeah. in squalor <laughs> right. I want to take the dark ride through your mind. Uh, that's, you know, uh, so that's why we all end up taking the safe job at the insurance company, so you don't end up like that. And then, yeah. Anyway. Well, here's here's. A, I mean, I, I have cited this example many times, but it was it made a really big impression on me. I mean, like when I was a kid, uh, being a lawyer, being an attorney, was like one of those jobs. You know, it was like you're going to be an attorney or a doctor. Like if you're an attorney or a doctor, you are the pinnacle. A professional white America in a lot of ways. This is before people thought a lot about, I mean, like, at least in my circles, those were the two jobs that you could just look at and go like, wow, that is absolutely somebody who is successful and has, has succeeded. They have achieved <laughs> and they have really arrived. Those are hard jobs for smart people who work very hard. I think a lot so, of lawyers hate their jobs too, by the way. This is the precise moral of the story, is that from a young age, so I mean, I'm sure I thought about it, like without ever really thinking about what it means to be a lawyer. But so, I mean, by the time I was in liberal arts school, I had some friends that I that were getting into their, let's say their third, fourth year of school who were like really thinking about, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to go to law school. I, w- I took constitutional law, almost lost my mind with how boring it was to me. Long story short, like some of my very smartest friends um, went to law school. Some of them went to like FSU uh, law school and uh, or UF and, I mean, did very, very well. These are some, you know, very, very smart people that were on like the – you know, the, like the review, whatever that's called, you know, the, the, the publication they do, they would do, um, I don't remember any of the terms for this, but like the mock debate thing, mock court, moot court and stuff like that. Anyway, but they would achieve in Lebowski in terms. Um, and one of my friends in particular, Dave, who has been the vice president of our, of our class and was a really great friend of mine, one of the smartest, like just guy who got it like super early. He's one of – think about how many people – I could think of like three – two or three people you and I know personally that have done this same thing. 
you have to be pretty goddamn smart to get into law school. Like, let's just say, let's take it, like, unless you cheated, you had to be pretty smart and work pretty hard. You're definitely beyond the 50th percentage of the bell curve to be able to get into law school, to take the, not the GRE, but the LSAT, I guess, and get into law school, right? What can we kind of stipulate? You, you can't be a total dingling to get into law school. And like, chances are, like, you, you, you've shown yourself to be somebody who can study a lot, who can learn a lot, and who is a, a thoughtful person who's able to think logically. Like, you know, you don't get into law school without having some of that. Once you get into law school, man, it's really hard. Like you've seen the paper chase. It's a lot of work. You work really, really hard. You, you do this. You do, you, you, now you're done with law school. Do you want to become an attorney? God, yes. You got to study for the bar. Is that easy? Not really. That's really hard. You have to study for the bar. Oh my God. More work, more work, more work, more dedication, more smarts, more logic, more, 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 more. Oh my God, I passed the bar. Now I get to go be a lawyer. Now you got to get a job. You got to work really, really. We're talking years into your, like, you're not even in your career yet. You're still in this, like, getting to somewhere part of your career. Dave, like several people I know, it took him, after all of that, it took him maybe, maybe six months of being a practicing attorney to make him say, there's absolutely no way I can do this job. And you think about, like, what you and I go through, like, just with, with our whatever jobs is like, oh, you know, you got some training. Uh, we got these. We got that. But, like, you've, you've been to law school. You've been through all of that. And then at the end of that, how could somebody that smart, that logical, that good of a reader, how – and I'm sure you'll have an answer for this. How do you get to the point where you've made it through law school, passed the bar, and gotten a job as an attorney somewhere? And that's when you realize, especially with litigation, maybe that's not for me. In Dave's case, he became a teacher at FSU Law School. Anyway, that was long, but I think that's a canonical example. And maybe it's maybe that's endowment effect. Maybe that's sunk costs. Maybe it's just blind stick to itiveness. Maybe it's an example of what you were describing, where you're a little bit too dedicated without knowing if it's your thing. But I think there are, to different degrees, there are examples of that everywhere in our life. And where it isn't until you've actually, quote unquote, arrived that you go, wow, this is not what I want. Lawyers are, I think, a, a special case and a great example because there is so much upfront stuff and because it's so difficult. And because you even, you even left out the part where you have to be like an indentured servant, where you, like your first parts of your career are just working terrible hours, like kind of like this hazing ritual because you're Yeah, you, you might be a, like a public defender. You right, might be or, like, or yeah, even if you just you want to get on the partner track to become a partner, like th- there's a payoff at the end of it. There is potentially a payoff, but you just got to be on the track and you got to do the work and put in the years. And like these are the best years of your life and you could feel that you're squandering them. Um, I don't have any real things to back this up other than gut feelings, but I feel like the social rewards, uh, the the sort of what you know, basically, what do other people think of you? Of being a lawyer are not as good as they are for being a doctor. A doctor has a very similar trail where you have to be really smart, you have to go through a lot of school. There is the you know the long hours of sleepless nights, the sort of hazing rituals of doing your you know time as a medical student, and like very similar doctors and lawyers, very similar, very difficult road, very difficult subject matter. But when you come out the other end, the things that are stacked against you in the practice of law just seem to outweigh those for doctors. So with doctors in general, a lot of respect. People like doctors. Um, people don't like the medical system in our country, but in general, I think people think doctors are good people who want to help people. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's a reward for helping people. Whereas lawyers, the legal system, think people have less respect for. It's an adversarial system. Everyone thinks injustices happen in our, in our justice system all the time. And if you're a part of that system, like 
I think people blame lawyers more, especially because, you know, because of our system, like you have to defend people who end up being guilty. Right. And that's part of the job. And that's kind of a high minded thing that people. Or or even if you get into like a civil case where you kind of hate both sides. I mean, if it's Peter Thiel versus Gawker, I'm I'm not going to get into it. Corporate law where where nobody wants, nobody likes corporations. And so many of our laws are dumb, like all patent laws and everything like that. Like where it starts to become, it starts to be divorced from reality. A lot of law and a lot of the reason they get paid a lot is because of this weird, complicated world that makes less and less sense the more you know about it in terms of like, uh, how you think how how regular people think the world should work whereas medicine is just like sick people healing and there's this terrible bureaucracy associated with with you know our terrible insurance system and prescription drugs and pharmaceuticals and that's all bound up with it in general the, the doctors are in that it's like well i'm just one person i'm trying to make people better i'm trying to work within the system whereas lawyers i think are identified as the system like well it's it's almost like um and this is a very 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 broad and maybe even a historical thing to say, but like no matter how broken the overall system of medicine is, most people can still see a given doctor who's helping their sick family as a good person. Like, you know, you, you may think you have strong feelings against doctors until one of them really helps somebody in your family and they they become like Superman. So no matter how big the broken system is, you can always still find something to love about a doctor. And something near the opposite happens with lawyers, which is no matter how good the system is, there will always be a lawyer to come in and screw it up. The best thing in the world, like you get the most successful product in your vertical and boom, you get, you get, you get served something from East Texas where now, now you've got to go depend, defend against this patent firm or what it, like you're describing. You know what I mean though? It's like well, no matter how good it gets. Yeah. There's no other side in doctors. There's not half the doctors aren't trying to make you sick and half the doctors are trying to heal you. And with the right. law, there's, there's always two sides to whatever it is. There's a, you know, there's a plaintiff and a defendant. There is the, you know, like whereas it, everyone in the medical profession ostensibly is trying to make people better. It, it was as lawyers as if half of the doctors were like, I'm trying to think of new ways to get people sick all the time. And I'm going to go up against the best healing doctor and maybe we'll switch sides sometime. And you'll try to make people sick and I'll try to heal them. It's a fun game we play. But sometimes, sometimes you're the good doctor and sometimes you're the bad doctor. Like sometimes you're the nature of your job in that case would be to like try and make, if, if you're, if you're, if you were hired to make the patient die in this case, you have to do your best at that particular thing just because you're, you're ethically obligated to do your best job at right. that. Right. Because that's what the law is. It's like, it's things we don't have clear decisions about. That's why we have to have, you know, laws and judges and courts. And like, if we knew the answers right away, we would just do it because it's an entirely abstract world, uh, you know, the, the world of laws that we build ourselves, whereas medicine is, we didn't make the body ourselves. We we're just living in it, and we have to try to heal it. Whereas the laws are entirely of our own invention, and so, you know, yeah, like so anyway. Getting back to the how lawyers would become dissatisfied. Similar amount of work, but when you come out the other end, like I don't think there's anyone who gets to be a lawyer who only gets to only gets to defend innocent clients, who only gets to represent corporations that are good and honest and who have done the right thing. Like that's no such thing as that's not what the law is about, and. You know that going in as a lawyer through all that, you know, like you're fascinated by this, you know, all, all sorts of things that make you want to get through all of that law school. But I can imagine that it might wear you down where like you thought you understood all of the the implications and were sort of idealistic about the role of law. And it's an important thing. It could be on board with it because, I mean, I think we're all on board with it to some degree. We don't want to live in a, a lawless society, but Doing that, you're like, being a public defender year after year after year. You can just get defeated by like you feel like I'm not making the world a better place. The system is defeating me. Mm-hmm. You know, you're all and, and you thing. still. But like it's interesting also because you're making me really think about this now. Is that <clears throat> at every one of those stages 
you kind of still get to be the rock star. There's still always an opportunity for you all along the way to be the smartest kid in the class. And so there is a, in some ways, there's a disincentive to noticing the kinds of things that might sort of mitigate against thinking about how well you'll be once you have to be part of this pack. In one instance, my friend's wife had gone all the way through law school and this is, this is her anecdote uh, that I'm redacting here, but, but her anecdote was it, was, it was literally not until she was in a study group for the bar. <laughs> and she, there was a, at some point she'd been through, you know, you, you study a lot. You see, like I say, paper chase, good movie. But like, um, but with the bar, like there's a lot, there's a lot of studying. You do it in groups. And after it wasn't after more than a handful of these that she found herself looking around the room and going like, I don't want to work with any of these people. Like all of the people in this room are people that I cannot imagine being required to spend the rest of my adult life with, which I think was a very insightful thing and a very gutsy thing at that to go that far and then be like, wait a minute, it never really occurred to me what this job is until I was here. And this job is, this is who I work with. You know, this is hell nor am I out of it. Like this is, this is like, this is going to be my life now. This is who I will have to spend my day with. And so, I mean, that's why I like, this is an old back to work point, but I always feel like rather than asking people like, what are you good at? Or like, what do you peep? What do people tell you you're great at? Like, it also helps to think about how you want to spend your day and who you can tolerate spending it with, you know, when you go into that kind of stuff. There are some very smart people that went a very long way before realizing I cannot be around these people. Yeah. If the answer to those questions is how do I want to spend my day doing whatever I want and who you want to spend it with? Nobody independently wealthy. I'm telling you, it's the way to go. You know what? It occurs to me, I can't remember if we talked about this in earlier, but a lot of people have not figured out how to solve the money problem. Yeah. They, I don't know why they just don't solve that once and for all. You just get out of the way and it really, it really clears. Is it that they the haven't thought about solving the money problem or they don't know how to solve the money problem? They just, they just don't work hard. They just don't work hard enough. They don't work hard enough. They, yeah. But I mean, have they thought about, I mean, I'm just tossing this out. You, you spend, I'm going to say arbitrarily two or three years solving the just money work, problem. Just work really hard for two or three years. It's not a big deal. You work hard, you save some. No but you know, mostly you, if you don't do it, someone else is, and they're going to have The your working money. hard is important, but making a lot of money is a big part of solving You're the money problem. You're going to have to spend the rest of your life knowing that they're married to your wife. Hmm. I messed up that line. What the hell is that from? I can't even remember my own references now. Where my children play with their toys. <laughs> no, it's not from that. Uh, it's a comedy movie. <laughs> Beloved characters. Mm-hmm. Back in the Disney vault. This is why we need a chat room. Hmm. You're going to have to spend the rest of your life knowing. That person is married to your wife. It's some. Is that a John Hughes movie? Something like that. We're trying to convince somebody that if you don't go over and talk to this girl, that someone else will, and they're going to marry him instead of you. Oh, that then... sounds like something with John Cusack. Yeah, probably. Hmm. Probably. You, some... you want, do you want to do a second take? Probably some dumb eighties movie. I, can't, I don't think I got the quote right. Probably some dumb eighties movie. But yeah. we should just go back to The Godfather. It's better. What have I done? What have I done to make you show me this disrespect? Roderick was doing a line for a movie and it seemed like you weren't picking it up and you shifted to The Godfather. That, that's my go-to. Uh, but but he, he, was, he was doing, I think you didn't get the, the movie he was referencing. He did such a good job. He had a couple of good lines and I don't remember what it was, but. Oh, I miss a lot of his references. Yeah, it was, it was, I felt like I, I should, you needed some help there. You needed some, call, uh, phone a friend. <sighs> that's a good idea. I should do that. Would you do that if I, if I called you for, for, uh, for a reference? Would you, would you pick up? You should probably text. Could we get a knock system? <laughs> just, just send the text. Hmm. Um, should I be using that Hillary Clinton app? Should we get that, you think? I don't know what that is. No, the Hillary Clinton app. You know, there's that app you use now. It's, it's the Edward Snowden app. But it's easy ways to give money to the campaign? 
Yeah. No. Oh, no, the, the, it's like the signal. It's, uh, some, something. Signal. Yeah. Signal. Yeah, you get signal. Should we, should we? Should you and I get signal? And if I have a question, I could just text you. No, you can just use iMessage. It's fine. Mm. Security through apathy. Nobody cares. 